Roll Podcast. All right. You have your head in the game? Dude, I'm so here. I'm so happy to be back. Good. Well, we're about to hit our zone two stride, but first. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests, all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really want to do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense, and you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down, and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment. So that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, 
search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Adam, are you sure you have your head in the game? Yes. Should we do the show? Let's do it. Fuck yeah. Hey everybody, welcome or welcome back to Roll On where Mr. Adam Skolnick and I are back in the lime green chairs to banter across this absurdly long table. Uh, what are we gonna do today, Adam? You know what? Before we even get into anything, I'm gonna say straight up, I'm underprepared for today. You are? Yeah, uh, it's an experiment. Well, I've I over prepared. I think I've generally <laughs> over prepared for these roll-ons and then I end up looking at my uh, iPad the whole time instead of making eye contact with you. Let's do a segment where we just, it's called uncomfortable eye contact. And we just- Oh, I'm an expert at that. We can just, we just yeah. can't look away. It's called <laughs> the uncomfortable- This will con- create an exceptional listener experience. Yes. <laughs> You don't have to speak. You just look no. at each other. Yeah, great pod. <laughs> great pod. Good, you know, awesome, dude. Uh, what are we gonna do today? Well, we're gonna celebrate a couple of milestones. Yeah. Probably get a little bit random here and there. Uh, less focus on newsy type stuff. That was the result of a creative meeting we had. We'll Wait, see how that goes. Is that, is that, More on is like, that real? Le- well, I'm the executive producer you here. Are, you are. So I'm making that <laughs> executive decision. Shops. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, do people really want us? Delving into the headlines. Some people do. Maybe some is some enough. I think more on the life lesson-y type shit. I like that. That's what we're gonna focus on today. Of course, we're gonna answer a few listener questions and then uh, call it a day, bro. Nice. It's raining out and uh, we have other stuff to do. (laughs) (laughs) You you might. (laughs) Well, you got a few things going on. Why don't you uh, check in? But actually before you do that, I wanna make a a little bit of a request or an ask to the listeners and the viewers. Uh, For longtime fans of the show, you know that last year uh, around the holiday season, we did this special episode around listener stories where people called in, they shared their experience of the podcast, how it has sort of benefited their lives and uh, some storytelling around that. And so we're gonna reprise that episode. It was really special, it was very cool. Um, and if you would like your experience or your story considered for inclusion in this episode, leave us an extended voicemail at 805-421-0057. That's 805-421-0057. Last year, this was really meaningful to us. And I think also to you guys, the audience, um, everybody who listened and uh, reached out seemed to really enjoy it. So we're excited to do it again. We've already gotten a huge response, but obviously we can always use more. So if you missed it last time, because we haven't been doing that many roll-ons, uh, get on it. So last time, and I'll include this in the show notes as well, of course, the number is 805-421-0057. Love it. Yeah, man. So how you doing? What's happening? Well, um, I've just started my new business. I don't want to, it's not launching 
just yet, but um, because we obviously we just hit this inclement weather season is upon us, mm-hmm. but we're, we're, we're excited out. to debut it next spring. Oh yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's my new Instagram picnic collab with LeBron James. Okay. Yeah, LeBron and I have been uh, working on our driftwood uh, shelters and our wildflower wreaths. And we're gonna have romantic picnics available for anybody who wants to you know, pay the price tag. Right, to join the two of you. No, we're the ones that put on, we cater. He's uh-huh. quite the patisserie. I mean, I don't know if you knew that. I'm about sure him. there's a joke in here somewhere that I don't get because <laughs> I, maybe I don't follow basketball enough. No, no, no. Explain. You know, these picnic collabs, don't you see these no. like, don't you see these Instagram picnics around the beaches? No. You've never seen I'm one? I'm 56 years old, Adam. I am not in that like silo of right. Instagram or whatever. It is. There's like a weird flat. there's a weird thing where like people share picnic photos. Like I'm confused. Yes, there's romantic there's a thing. It is a pandemic business that popped up and there are these in, there's Instagram picnics. Like you pay and someone has like created an a habitat for you to enjoy like a nice romantic meal on the beach. Uh-huh. And then you take the photos and you're like sipping whatever and eating your fine food. Do they take the photos of you for you? I don't know, I haven't gotten that far. Does that include uploading them for you as well? I think you probably upload (laughs) yourself. And where does LeBron come into this? I don't know. I just, I pitched him the idea and Uh he was in, he was over at the, at Ben and Jerry's the other day. Right, and so, yeah. And so while I was there, I just, he he thought, he thought that I had a, a genius idea and you know, he's a businessman, so. Right. I pitched him. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, I'm hoping to maybe, get him. Maybe I might be premature maybe with announcing. Table, table this one. For you don't now. like this one? Yeah, no. All right. <laughs> Go back to scooping the cream. <laughs> That's it. You can indulge the dream. That dream is not the dream. I'm a lifetime though. scooper. Uh, but with your feet firmly planted on the ground yes. and, and back to a three dimensional reality, yes. uh, you do actually have some pretty exciting news. I do. I do. So uh, on December 6th, the sequel to David Goggins' Can't Hurt Me, his second book is launching, it's called Never Finished, and it is finally finished. Mm. There were times there where we there's, wondered if there's never finished. There's a little finished. irony in there. <laughs> for a while, yeah. we had, um, we worked really hard on it, man. We've been working on it for, we worked on it for about a year and a half. And then obviously it, it encapsulates not just this, but the last four years, how, how he's, you know, his life over the last four years, plus um, stories and episodes from his past life. So mm-hmm. in that way, it's almost like shades of Sidaris at this point. Like he's, he is, um, or Sidaris, I should say. David Sidaris? Sidaris, yeah. yeah. And you know, how he can unpack his life and, right. and deliver it. David is the, the, got the that. comparison ends there though. Like I can't right. think of two people less alike than David but, Sidaris and but David But in, in a way they aren't, because I don't know if you knew this about David Sidaris, he is like a psycho with his steps and he, he walks. He collects trash yeah, for eight hours a day. 30,000 steps, yeah. yeah. So, but um, what my point is, is that he's got this corner of the literary world now that is really about it's his memoir, it's his mm-hmm. life that he can continually unpack and shape and entertain as well as educate right. readers. And so that, and listeners. And so it's kind of like, I'm just trying to figure out how you compare it because there's nobody that's doing that. And so it's like shades of that. And then also meets kind of the last American samurai kind of book of philosophy. It's mm-hmm. like Goggins graduate school. So if you loved Can't Hurt Me, this is like his true philosophy. He, that's how he describes it. Can't Hurt Me is like Rocky. This is kind of like how he actually does it. Right. And it's the same kind of concept. It's stories from his life in chapters. That's the main story. And, um, you know, 
how he's dealt with the ups and downs the last four years and where he's going. Mm-hmm. And I, I think people will be very surprised and, and impressed. And then in between that, instead of challenges, there's evolutions. And so it's all about kind of evolving and these life lessons that he's learned throughout his life and kind of um, uses today. So that's it. It's um, the audio book once again is, we do the chapter, we do an evolution, we talk, um, unpack it further. Right. Um, And do you read the chapters like you did last time? I am the narrator and the chapters and then we talk in between. Um, Goggins has some, a bit of narration as well. And then it's just incredible. Um, so all of that's happening. It's spectacular. Um, really honored to have been a part of it. We're really excited about it. And so we'll see what happens. We got um, some competition in Prince Harry. Yeah. <laughs> and Michelle Obama again, but we'll see. Oh, what is happens. Michelle Obama coming out with a book again <laughs> she, she is, at the yeah. same time that <laughs> three wow. weeks earlier again? Tete a tete with Michelle yeah, once yeah, again. Yeah, very yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, I know that you've been working on this book very hard for a very long time. And yeah. we've been cagey about it on the show. You'd come in and you'd say, well, I'm deep in this project, but you wouldn't, you couldn't really talk about what it was. So, you know, obviously you've shared a little bit more with me about what you've been doing behind the scenes. And this is certainly a long time coming, super exciting. Uh, clearly there's a massive audience who is anticipating, you know, what this next book is gonna be. I did see David's announcement on Instagram where he published that little video. And he told this story about, you know, how people's second books usually suck or that's what he was told. Yeah. And how he shared this book with some trusted advisors and friends. And they were all amazed that this one is actually better than the second one. The first one was sort of a teaser. He was playing it a little bit on the surface because he didn't wanna go too far because people might not be able to handle right. like the full 100% Goggins. And once he realized like, oh, I tested this, there is an audience and uh, an appetite for what I have to say. Now we can go deep and uh, is seemingly very encouraged by this book that you guys worked hand in hand on. And yeah. that is crazy exciting. So, yeah. you know, soon he's gonna be everywhere, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. and, you know, and, it's, and also let's not forget, once again, self-publishing, right? Like yeah, he self-publishing. Is, they should be teaching his his uh, model in at Harvard Business School. Like what he's done as a self-published author is completely unprecedented. We think, I mean, the words I've heard is that it, it nonfiction, it's the biggest self-published book ever. I'm not sure if that's true because yeah. I, I haven't looked four at the numbers myself. Four, over four million now, mm-hmm. it's like going and towards four and a half. And does that include audio or is that That includes just, everything, that uh, includes audio. And what is the percent, I would, I would think, Audio might be like it's, it's probably over usually half. like forty, but it's gonna it's got to yeah. be over half. Yeah, I think one. it's yeah. I think I don't exactly have the number. I think it's like sixty. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. Right. And um, but that you know he's he's been a product of the audio space. You know, like that's like in terms of how he sure. kind of got his fan base. I mean, that's how it happened. So it's not surprising. I, I think um, you know he set the standard to try to exceed can't hurt me not in terms of sales but just in terms of quality of the book you know mm-hmm. you know it's never been about sales because if he wanted to do sales he could have put put a book out 2 years ago and it, you know it's never been about that it's about delivering something to the reader and having the reader in mind and having something you know it's very much about thinking of how the reader is going to come out of the experience of this book and I think that's special, you know, and, and it's challenging. Mm-hmm. And when he first said, you know, he wants it to be better than Can't Hurt Me, I thought, wow, I mean, I, I didn't think that was a reasonable goal, to be honest with you. Yeah. With you. But, you know, he's not about reasonable goals no, and, and he, he tends to isn't. exceed the unreasonable <laughs> goals. So, yeah. uh, so I believe- but That must've been daunting from your perspective entering into that with that objective. Well, it was to, you know, look, 
so the way I, I try to make writing as easy as possible for me. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, I try not to actually think about the end game because all I can do is the process of it and make it the best it can possibly be. I didn't think we'd get there, um, but now there, I mean, it's, we'll see how people respond to it. I, I love this book. You know, it, it was, there was so much love put into it. When you, when people, I can't wait to talk about it more, like when the book is out and mm -hmm. we can talk about it more, uh, but like, what he has done and achieved, uh, some of the most incredible athletic accomplishments I've ever heard of, um, what he, how he's dedicated his life in, in the direction it is now. Mm. Um, I think it's gonna surprise a lot of people and it's just another level. You know, There's lessons on leadership, there's lessons on day-to-day -day living, there's lessons on how to kind of overcome obstacles from being at the bottom of the barrel, of course. There's darker stories than I think even some are darker than you've heard and can't hurt me. Mm -hmm. So just to be a part of it is obviously was a thrill for me and, and I learned a lot from it. And I, I can say, I feel like I'm a better writer for having done mm. it. So all of those things make me really excited to share this. Yeah, yeah, super exciting, man. Yeah, thank you. I'm proud of you. It's great. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for David. Thank you. Uh, and you know, it's a powerful message that clearly resonates with a lot of people and needs to be more broadly amplified to no the doubt. culture. So no doubt, no doubt. I mean, yeah. I think that the lessons in here. You remember, like the last four years. So we're talking about the pandemic. We're talking about you know mm. X Y Z. So like a lot. You know, we're not. We don't dwell on any one thing like that. But there is, you know. Goggins will explain how he dealt with it in his yeah. own way. Yeah, yeah. cool, man. Yeah. So again, the, the date that it comes out is December. December 6th. So we'll put a link in the show notes, pre-order it. All yeah, that yeah, stuff. thank you. Thank yeah, you. Course, yeah, we're man. excited and, uh, and look forward to hearing how people respond to it. And thank you to all the Goggins fans and Ritual fans who mm. um, are on the train with us. Yeah, cool. Yeah. You got recognized up in Big Sur. <laughs> it happens every once in a while. <laughs> I love that when that happens for you. Yeah, thanks, man. It's, it's cool. fun. I don't know how to hand. I don't know where to put my hands. <laughs> you don't know where to. I keep put them your hands. myself. Put them on the phone for the yeah. selfie. That's there it. you the go. Selfie, right. The selfie. Yeah. 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 All right, buddy. Um, how are you, man? What's going on? I know you were at the formula. You were in the pits at the F1. Yeah, I had an exciting experience in Austin a couple of weeks ago. There's a lot going on. Julie's in Egypt right now. I think she's got another five days there. She's mm. been gone like uh, two weeks or something like almost two weeks. She's hosting a retreat there and is having an amazing experience. But so I'm kind of at home with all the kids and being a homebody at the moment. But I did take Tyler and Trapper, the boys to Austin for our first inaugural Formula One experience at the Austin GP. Was it like a happy um, birthday to me type trip kind of thing? Yeah, it was my birthday. Right. So we flew on my birthday, which was October 20th, uh, turned 56. Happy birthday. Some thoughts on that as well. And I thought uh, a little boys trip could be fun. The boys are super fans. I had always found Formula One to be kind of an impenetrable, you know, sort of sport. Right. Like I knew about Schumacher and how he got paid a lot of money. And clearly this is a big deal in Europe. But to me, it was sort of like football, soccer, you know, like I didn't really know that much about it other than that there was a massive fan base and those people are extremely passionate about yes. it. And then and Drive to Survive, the Netflix series occurred and I was all in on that. Like I found that series to be incredibly captivating mm. and created this emotional connectivity with all of the different characters and gave me just enough information to, to understand on a very base level what was occurring. It's very surface level, that series, but- Is that how the do, boys got into it? Like by watching They that were series? already kind of into it and that kind of 
deepened the connection, but they're so into it now, they subscribe to the streaming service and oh, they wow. get up in the middle of the night to watch the races that are in Europe. Like they follow it very intensely, much oh, wow. more so than me. Right. Um, but I'm up to speed enough where I would consider myself a fan and I thought it would be really fun. So we went and we bought general admission tickets, but I knew a few people and I was like, I don't know if we can, what we can kind of, you know, finagle here. But I've had sort of an internet friendship with Angela Cullen, who's Lewis Hamilton's uh, performance coach for a number of years. Mm. And she invited us to come to the paddock on Friday, which is um, practice day. And she got us into the Mercedes garage and gave us a tour, which was like unbelievable. Amazing. We met uh, Lewis briefly, got to check out engineering and really observe uh, the mechanics and the engineers and how they work together. Got to meet Toto Wolf, who's the team director. Uh, met Lewis very briefly. Mm-hmm. Brad Pitt was around with Jerry Bruckheimer. <laughs> They're having meetings about the Formula One movie. Like it was crazy. When is that know? happening? They're gonna be shooting it next year and they're gonna be shooting parts of it at the races. I think next year there's gonna be a race in Las Vegas and mm. I think they're gonna shoot at that race. So that was cool. Like these, these, Lewis Hamilton is a producer on that movie. Uh, Tim Cook was at the race because Apple TV is financing the project. So there's a lot of like interesting characters crazy. walking around. And once you're kind of in the paddock, it's sort of this VIP kind of red carpet experience where you can mingle around and you know the garages are all in a line and they have hospitality suites on the opposite side of each of the garages and people are just kind of going in and out of these all day including journalists and team directors and you know drivers and crew and all that kind of stuff and it was just amazing to be a fly on the wall and observe all of that yeah. and to be privileged enough to be in the garage and kind of not only watch them assembling the car and like, you know, taking the undercarriage off and putting it back on and having somebody who explain to us why that's important and what goes into the science and the engineering of that. And then to have, uh, Angela gave us headphones and we were able to hear the drivers communicating with engineering, um, giving feedback while they were doing practice laps, mm. which was like crazy. Amazing. Like the amount of science, engineering, teamwork, communication that goes into Formula One is like beyond. Uh, and then shout out to my new friend, Sean Doss, who is an endurance athlete who's coached by Chris Howth. He ran Marathon de Saab and is a sport agent. He's a sports agent out of London. And one of his big clients is F1. And he's in charge of this hospitality experience that they are curating and creating at Formula One. And he was able to get us paddock passes on Saturday and Sunday mm. to watch the race and kind of Commingle around you know what was people. going on there, <laughs> you know and uh, like, well, he was a new friend. And like, right. I, I, we went in expecting nothing, and we ended up with like the most privileged experience you could possibly right. imagine, um, which was pretty cool. And it was fun to see some other friends there. Dan Churchill was there, um, who's a podcaster, friend of mine. New York City restaurateur mm. has a restaurant called Charlie Street, and he was doing some food and beverage stuff for. Sean at that hospitality suite and Mike Gervais was there. It was cool to see him, some other folks and just really kind of enjoy the race from uh, a beginner's mind perspective. And like sort of reflecting upon that experience, there's some interesting kind of takeaways other than just like me sharing this fun birthday weekend. It left me thinking a lot about the genius myth and Mm. The genius myth is something that I've also been thinking a lot about because I just saw the movie Tar. 
which is all about the genius myth. Uh, I don't wanna spoil that movie. It's certainly an Oscar contending motion picture. Please go check it out if you haven't seen it already. It stars Kate Blanchett as this um, heralded maestro, this conductor, like the, con- like, like the greatest music conductor, living music conductor who's mm. very celebrated mm. um, conducting the Berlin Symphony. And it's a story about her life, uh, fictional character, but it really upends this genius myth in that we as a country sort of like to hoist up these incredible high performers and delude ourselves into believing that they are outliers that are able to kind of do what they do in isolation, right? Mm. And the truth of the matter is, whether you're conducting a symphony or you're driving a Formula One car, you are supported by gigantic teams of people who work very diligently and hard to make you look like a genius. And when you're in the garage of Formula One and you just see dozens and dozens of people, and then you're in engineering and all these people on laptops running diagnostics and the hundreds of people who are back at the headquarters for the team who are working on the car and improving the car and communicating with the engineers and the mechanics, like it's insane how many cooks are in that kitchen Mm. and the kind of flow of communication that is required in order for that driver to sit in that car and perform at the highest level. We all see the pits where they come in and the pit crews who operate so flawlessly and Mm. sort of magnificently, but behind them are all these other people who are kind of doing the same thing in a way that's a little bit less sexy or, or romantic. And or just, accessible. Yeah, accessible, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, and I was, yeah. I was like able to watch this and I was like, my, my head was exploding, right? Yeah, yeah. And then seeing Tar and it, it's really about the same thing, like all of these wonderful symphony musicians um, that, that support the conductor and make the conductor look good and all the behind the scenes kind of stuff that goes into, you know, creating the quote unquote genius. And then, the kind of narrative spooling that the quote unquote genius does themselves to brand build and create that idea that they are a genius. It's, and then to kind of upend that and deconstruct that and realize like, it's not to say that there aren't extremely talented, gifted people, but nobody, you know, sort of excels at the highest level at the elite level in anything without an unbelievable foundation of support from lots of people who, are not in the spotlight. And that goes for this podcast and everything that I've achieved. Mm-hmm. I think you would probably concur. Um, so I've just been thinking, you know, kind of a lot about that subject matter. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. You know, we're all the interconnection just doesn't go away. You know, even if you're if you're involved in a project of like sitting you're writing and you're tapping away, even if it's it's a project of my own, it's you're still dependent. Even if you're just mm. reporting a story from New York, you're, you're dependent on sources, you're dependent on editors, you're dependent on an operation that keeps a publication alive. You're always just tapping into some sort of part of the interconnected matrix in some way. Um, and now, you know, in some places you can see it much more easily. I mean, the fact that the conductors are like considered the genius is pretty funny in that because they're not actually playing the music. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, but they're Lewis interpreting is, the music. They're, interpreting they're making it, right. choices about how the music is expressed. And they're arranging. Yeah. And they're seeing things you don't necessarily see. Um, so you need those kinds of soothsayers. I mean, we have them, we have kind of the curse of the genius now. <laughs> Like we're seeing the dark side of genius a is like bit, yeah. is kind of our era now. Yeah, a li- there's a little bit of that. Yeah. I don't want to go down that no. sewage drain hole <laughs> at the moment. Um, but I but I will say that I think there's something inherently uh, American about the whole idea as well, because mm. this is a country that's built on this notion of rugged individualism, and right. we prioritize individual 
success and excellence over, you know, the kind of collective, uh, you know, the, the, the collective success of the whole. Right. And we love those stories. And even if we can poke holes in them and say, yeah, well, that person did that, but like, like we could take Elon Musk and say, well, he's a self-made man. But if you really uh, rigorously analyze that, you do realize that is that it is a myth in many ways. Like he, got, he had help from lots of people and some of the stuff about the way that, you know, Tesla came to get, he wasn't a founder of Tesla. Like there's a lot of things about that where you realize like, oh, he has worked with teams of people and benefited from that and has been a, you know, a, a builder of teams or whatever. But the idea that, the sole genius idea is is never you know truly meets rough scrutiny, like right. hard scrutiny. Right, the idea of the rugged individualist bootstrapper, you know, you have the vision, you can make it happen, kind of thing. But in America, we love that, and we don't want to hear differently. We love. It's almost like it's part of the fabric, and it came out of. I don't know the birth of the country where people, the first settlers who moved here, were like felt kind of cloistered and there was too many laws and too much law and order mm-hmm. in England and a king and it tells you what to do. And here you can just yeah. visualize Go it. Do, if do you it. wanna do it, do it. And that lasted, of course, that was never a hundred percent true because there were people that were enslaved here pretty quickly. Yeah. And then there were native American people who were here that didn't get quite a voice to do as they but wanted. But this notion of manifest destiny and the kind right. of you know Mark Twain idea of like lighting out on the frontier right. and all of that, that is like inherently American. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. because of that, I think, that's in there. And there is a, you know, there is, that goes to why we're so obsessed with kind of like people are obsessed with individual freedoms, why, why like some people were really offended by the mask mm-hmm. thing uh, or the vaccine recommendation. Other people were Any like, inroad on individual liberty is seen as a transgression. Right. And it's not responsibly calibrated against our responsibility to the collective. Like right. I, I talked about this with Ryan Holiday on the podcast and I shared a reel where he articulated that notion very concisely. And it's and it was met with not derision, but I would say controversy. Like people don't like to hear that. But you know, your liberty is only as valuable as the responsibility with which it's sort of um packed in with, right? Right. Like well, April says it all the time coming from Australia where there is a sense of collectivity. That doesn't mean that there aren't people who chafe against restrictions and aren't interested in individual freedom anywhere. I mean, there was people rebelling against restrictions. Well, historically, we've had that like right. during periods of duress, you know, for this country, whether it's World War II or whatever, we've where we've endured, uh, you know, a kind of a communal, stressful experience for the nation, we've been able to cohere and come together and recognize that level of shared responsibility to each other. But that seems to be something bygone. Like I, well, I, I'm she, not sure that we could recapture that. Well, I mean, but there, like if you go to Australia and you rent a car and cruise around, you'll notice if you're the American, you're the one speeding. <laughs> like there's things like there's rules uh, that are adhered to in a much more kind of communal way than we have here. I'm not saying that's better or worse. I'm just pointing it out. So she sees that like people speeding or breaking the driving rules. Well, like we just take that as, okay, yeah, why not go a little mm-hmm. faster? It's fine. Um, it's not that way there. People are just in more ingrained to the collective over there. That's just the way it is in the majority. Right. And it's interesting. I was thinking, you know, same thing with people who are interested, you know, I saw Teddy McDonald the other day. He's, he's now spending, a, you know, mm-hmm. his family's moved to Austin. He comes right. back and forth. Um, and he was saying, he, he talked, he met up with someone who's from San Diego and was so loving Texas because you can open carry there. And I thought, 
a good solution to the open carry. I'm not saying we shouldn't open carry if you want to open carry and that's your state. What I'm saying is you have to commute by horse. Well, if you're a strict constructionist, Adam, <laughs> they'd be that, commuting that by would horse. be construed as an impediment on your, the expression of your right to bear arms. What about spurs? Can they wear spurs in their Honda Civic so that when they get out, I just want to hear them. Can coming. they, or do they have to? They have to. Yeah, I don't know. No, no. <laughs> it's not going to work. We're not going there. <laughs> no. Um, I got a see Tar. It's at the top of my list. I, I think Tar is Kate, amazing. Kate Blanchett is like right. I mean, she's, I mean, she's, she's the top of the game. She's going to win the Oscar for that movie. Like uh, her her performance is just luminescent. It's it's as it's, always. A, it's quite an extraordinary movie. It's probably different than what you might expect. I don't know what people. It's a cancel culture movie, isn't it? Well, there's an aspect of that. I wouldn't say it's a movie about cancel culture. Okay. Um, there is, you know, sort of a component to the narrative that entails, yeah, that kind of experience. I don't want to spoil it beyond okay. that. But the other movie I would recommend, and I, I don't know why I'm recommending it because I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I we know, do in the internet. I, I've done some reading <laughs> around it. This is bad, right? I'm going to like talk about no, this, a movie this, I haven't this seen. This goes right into it's a like, future subject. I'm only going to say positive things, though. Uh, Banshees of Inisherin, which I know right. you're excited to. I'm very see. excited. Yeah. I mean, I mean like, like, who doesn't know. love McDonough? Like, right. this guy's a genius. Yes. If you've seen In Bruges, I know that's one of your favorite movies In ever. In Bruges, yeah. Uh, and he's three pairing, He's pairing these two guys yeah. again together, Colin Farrell and uh, um, what's his name again? Uh, is it what's Colm? No, Col- not not Colm. Meaning. No. Uh, uh, Look that up, somebody on IMDb. Yeah, and then we'll cut it in. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel terrible. I can't remember his name. Um, but anyway, like I, I do know, and I don't want to spoil this, even though I haven't seen it. Uh, I know that one of the themes is it's basically about a fractured lifelong friendship, where one guy is sort of a happy-go-lucky dude, played by Colin Farrell, and the other gentleman, Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson. Yes, thank you. Um, has decided that he wants his life to be about something more meaningful and can't hang out with Colin anymore. And he's gonna devote his life to his art, which right. is music, right? right? And so it's the theme being like the split within all of us about what it means to live a good life. Like what is a life well-lived? Is a life well-lived one that is devoted completely? Like I'm sure McDonough struggles with this in his own mind. Like, should I just devote myself to my work and my legacy and these plays and these movies and these screenplays that will live beyond me after I die and just put all of my best energy into that? Or should I be the guy who goes to the pub at two o'clock every day and has a laugh with his buddies and goes home like feeling connected to his community? Like what is, like if you're just gonna you know, create a binary around right. those two things, right. where do you devote your time and your energy? And this is a movie that I believe from what I understand grapples with this and you know, is about that struggle that I think is very relatable. We all think about that sometimes. Should I just, look, if, if you think like life is relatively meaningless, then you should just fuck off and try to have as much fun as possible. Right. Not stress about too much. Well, or if you take yourself seriously, or you're buying into this genius myth, or you think that you're here for some kind of purpose, then you should be, you know, at the at the expense of community, friendship, love, family, relationships, be investing all of your creative juices into your work product while your brain is capable of doing that. You know, it makes me think two things. First of all, Ernest Hemingway used to write from like 5 a.m. to noon and was at the bar every day. 
every right. day, every day. Yeah. So he figured Probably it out, and he has a bit much. of a legacy. Yeah. Well, and also all of that other stuff <laughs> yeah. was part of his writing. Right. Like right. He right. merged those right. two. So, but experiences. I, but I, I, I do relate to that because I think life is seasonal, right? There's these seasons that you have. And I just look at it that way, more of a continuum of seasons. And it's like, a, I, have a, I have another book I could add to this pile in my car. It's like a, a Buddhist kind of like everyday read a, a passage type mm-hmm. thing. And one of them that really stuck with me because of the season I'm in is that life is basically in seasons. Sometimes you're gonna be free to go diving with your homies every day. And sometimes you have to <laughs> stare at an office yeah. and stare at your computer. And then you have to be kind of committed to your family and you have to, you're growing a kid and you're, you know, you're, you're watching him grow and enjoying that. And there's just, there are restrictions on the seasonality. And in, within those restrictions and tensions, genius comes through. So when you have too much time and you're, you know, so I, I, I think that I, sh- I shouldn't have used the word genius, but like mm-hmm. moments of transcendence come through. So there could be moments of transcendence in the wide open escape. And there could be moments of transcendence within the, the seasonal pressures that you're under. And you can't a- access everything all at once. Like life is just not like that. So the more we can embrace the conditions that we're in is probably better. And you know, if that, I can't wait to watch this movie because in Bruges, like I said, one of the best written movies yeah. of all time. It's the, maybe the best written comedy I've seen in, you know, I don't know who knows how long, maybe ever. Uh, and, but I love, I can't wait to see how <laughs> Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell go back and forth where his one buddy has decided, no, I'm, I'm a musician now, <laughs> go fuck yourself. Yeah. It's gonna be hilarious. Yeah, you know, uh, but I do understand like that. Colin pulling. Farrell's just confusion over but, like yeah, his but, uh, buddy's sudden, you know, decision. I understand the pulling back. I've done it in different ways over the course of my life. It's not always a great idea because in the end that interconnectedness exists and we do need all these different kind of support systems. Mm-hmm. So um, I can't wait to see how it plays out. I just hope there's an evil Ray Fines in there. <laughs> I don't know if he shows up. No, not this, this time, not this time. Yeah. Um, all right, well. Uh, what do you think to that? I have some more thoughts and it kind of dovetails into uh, turning 56 and oh. you know having this birthday, but yeah. let's take a quick break and we'll be back with uh, some more thoughts. All right. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go. And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and 
deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. And we're back. Uh, I do wanna share one thing before we get into like sort of reflections on <laughs> getting older. Uh, and that is the- <laughs> yeah, Welcome to the yeah, Getting Older right. podcast. We're just gonna get grizzled and gray and like- Wait you till know, you guys hear Adam's- Gnash our teeth about the young yes. people. Yes, yeah, so you, um, you can hear a foot story coming up, which is very exciting. Speaking of exciting, yeah, should we talk about fuzz bubble? Fuzz bubble. <laughs> so Jason Camiolo, longtime audio engineer slash producer, sitting right over there, right? He's the now. heavy around here. He uh, came up in a band called Fuzzbubble. They had their moment of fame back on MTV on P Diddy's uh, label. Um, Jason ended up, you know, kind of moving in a different direction with his life after that experience, but Fuzzbubble is getting back together and they are going on tour, which I'm super excited for. And they got an, ep- an album coming out. When's the album coming out? Yeah, where is the uh, 20th. the 20th of so, November? Fuzz Bubbles' new record. It'll be on, be on Spotify, Spotify right? and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, everywhere, all the places. What's all the, the stuff. what's the album title called? Cult Stars from Mars. I love Cult it. Stars I love that. Mars. I love that album title. Excellent. And uh, you're going to be playing Huntington, New York, on November 19th. Correct. Um, any other shows or just that one show? Pleasantville, New York, on the 18th. 18th and then, all right, cool. So we'll, we'll link up All right, that. thank you. Um, very cool. Thank you. Very Never too exciting. late for the dream, bro. Yeah. No, nah, man, That's you gotta keep it going, right? I you gotta know. do what you love. Exactly. So here we are, I turned 56. That's fucking old, no matter how you slice it. <laughs> is that why the you're gray wearing, is coming you wearing in a cardigan? Hot. Is What's that a cardigan? I'm, yes, <laughs> this is what older gentlemen wear. Is I'm wearing that, a kind yeah, of like, like a cardigan-esque yeah, thing. A little bit, a little bit. Uh, and it's had me kind of, you know, <laughs> reflecting on getting older. Uh, that's old. I don't, what? <laughs> You're like, that's old, bro. Yeah, it is old. <laughs> like I'm closer to 60 now than I am to 50. You like, are. That's fucking crazy, right? <laughs> and it's inescapable. Cause now when I look in the mirror, I'm like, damn, that gray hair, it's all Are you over kidding the place me? You look now. fabulous. No, it's, it's really coming in hot. Um, you know what though? And, you know what? Can I stop yeah. you right there? From the chest down, Steve Martin. Just pure Steve Martin from the chest down over here. Just all white, you just mean? White, just You're talking white, about you. Just coming in. Talking about you, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Go on. You got a lot of, you have a lot of dark hair in your beard still. Uh, my my yeah. beard's basically entirely white. I'm like Santa Claus. Um, I do feel, I don't, I don't know what you're supposed to feel like at 56. I do feel physically quite good. I have a lot of energy and uh, I want to be able to channel that energy in productive, positive, fun community building ways while yeah. I can. You know, I had a great time at this Formula One experience and it was great to be around a lot of people that was different from me. Like I'm kind of this lone wolf guy who just right. kind of does his own thing. And and I'm having serious FOMO about the New York Marathon, New York City Marathon, which was yesterday, mm-hmm. we were recording this on Monday. It was 
on Sunday, had tons of friends participating in that race. I know you were in Malibu and April yes. ran the, the half marathon. Uh, congrats to April. Yeah, yeah. She, Ted she, McDonald was down there as well. Yeah, they both finished really fast. Teddy was like 130 yeah. something and April was 143. And I couldn't do it. I was signed up for that race. And because I'm also getting older, I'm 50. Mm. Um, I tore my post tibial tendon in training. And it was like it was like a, a slow unwinding of a rubber band in the middle of my foot. It felt like a cramp in the connective tissue with that little uh-huh. And I ran home, it was like a mile and a half run home. And I'm like, that's not good. And I yeah. waited like a week and finally went to the doctor, had the MRI. My foot's been fucked up for a long time. So it's probably heading that way, but I couldn't do it. So I'm, I'm like, I, I ended up getting PRP injections. I'm gonna get some more, mm. hopefully no surgery, but I couldn't run it. So I, I know the feeling, you know, you wish you, I wanted to be, I wanted to do it, man. I was like, my body wanted to do mm-hmm. it. You know, I was there yeah. and I thought I can run in these hiking boots. No, that would not have been smart. (laughs) But I had the same feeling about New York City. I wanted to run that race. My back issues prevented me from training for it. And then I had to kind of watch it on Instagram, watching, you know, Alexi Pappas and Shalane Flanagan. Oh, so many podcast guests like Alexi Pappas, Shalane Flanagan. Hella was there kind of covering it. Um, And he did, he he, like, I think a day or two before the marathon was his 2000th, um, day in a row of running on mm-hmm. his run streak and his shoe sponsor Hoka gifted him with like this golden shoe, like, like awesome. a trophy. And he had a big group of people that he was running with. Uh, Casey Neistat ran. So that's the latest podcast that just went up mm-hmm. with Casey. We recorded that last summer. Um, Davey running 350. Amazing. He's not here today because he's still in New York City. Shout out to Davey. Uh, William Googe, he came, he was out at the house the other was week. Was he? Yeah, he oh. was in LA for a couple of days and came out. He's a stud. O's running 240. I mean, come on. O's told me that that was what he was hoping, that, that's what was his goal was 240, but he felt like he has more to give and he's like gonna he inspire him to get, get after it even harder. That's what he told this me. This guy is unbelievable. unbelievable. And he blew up, he had this big viral moment from uh, being with the Seahawks. Did you see that? No, well, no, I, ha- I didn't, I, I haven't seen the Seahawks one yet. And there's the Tampa Bay one too, right? Well, the Seahawks seen. one was huge. So okay. there's all this video of him, it's Pete Carroll and he's with the Seahawks team and he's you know doing what he does. And he he guesses like the, the security code to one of the guy's phones. So he can like, <laughs> unlock the guy. And these guys are like pissed. They're like, <laughs> they can't believe it, right? And that video, like ESPN shared the video, Barstool Sports shared it. Amazing. Like, um, Dave Portnoy like right. wrote a blog post about it. So like suddenly O's was in a different like stratosphere yeah. of kind of recognizability. And then, you know, just relentlessly like goes from one thing to the next, throws down a 240. Yeah, 240, as if it's nothing. A casual 240, Cash at, 240. At, the York, at the New York City Marathon. Um, Robbie Ballinger was there, again, my boy. Did they all run Churchill. it? Churchill, Des Linden was leading the race. Okay. Like, yeah, like tons of people ran it. And I was like, Fuck, I didn't know man, Robbie ran it there. for some reason. He showed up, um, yeah, with his wife and, okay. and ran it with her. Amazing. Um, so anyway, it looked like a lot of fun. And Incredible. I was like, bon- and I was like, never again. Like Could whatever you, did, I have to do to get my back four? correct, to get back into it. Like I wanna be there next year for sure. Dude, that's your goal? Just is to that the have fitness fun, goal? like not to like, I mean, my goal is really to be pain-free and to be, fit and solid enough so that on any given day, I can go out and run a marathon or ride a century or do a swim run or do something and just have fun with it. Like, 
you know, not to be like rubber banding in and out of shape and all that kind of stuff, but just to be in like a constant state of fitness preparedness and readiness to yeah. be able to go have fun experiences with other people. Yeah. Like that's a big goal of mine for the next year. Yeah, I have the same goal is to like get more full body. Goggins has ordered me into the gym. And so Good. to lift weights and just to get more, he thinks that my problem was a hundred mile months, three months in a row without, like I wasn't really, I'm just wonky. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really ideal for me. And I yeah. should have topped out at 80 mile weeks during that period. And I probably would have made it to the race day. And just by doing that, by pushing a little harder when I wasn't fully like balanced in my body, like muscular wise. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been ordered into the gym. Good. And so I'm going to be doing that. And uh, I'm in the gym too. Good, 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 yeah. good. What about the pool? Is the pool okay for your back or not really? Is it the pushing uh, off that's not so good? I haven't been swimming very much. The flip turns, I think, yeah. are, are are really the the inhibitor yeah. there. Yeah. Um, it's not the swimming itself. But right. I'm just trying, I'm like, my focus really is the gym right now to get as strong and as stable as possible. For the same can. idea, right? Yeah. 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 So we'll see how it goes. We can trade. My notes. money is on you, buddy. I want to see the workout that he wrote up for you. He hasn't written them up. He's he's I, I'm he's giving me workout. ideas, and then uh, I think I'm not ready for his workout. <laughs> <laughs> Come I think, on, I think I think I think. Come on, I uh, know I know. Um, so how about uh, seventy point three, dude? Yeah. So Christian Blumenfeld snapping back mm. after Gustav clutching the. Ironman World Championship victory out from beneath them. Yep. Following week, Christian says, yeah, watch this. <laughs> Pulls it right back. Was I mean, it a, like, was it just was one it? week two or weeks? two weeks? Two weeks. Was it two? I think or it was two, two, three weeks. Two weeks, not three weeks. Two weeks. I think it must have been two weeks, 10 days, something like but that. But on their podcast with you, they, there was a foreshadowing of this because Gustav said to you that he that he takes him a long time to recover. Mm. Whereas, and Christian said Bounces that he right can go there. week to week to week and just keep grinding out these races. Yeah, he like doesn't accumulate lactate. Right, and so Gustav, so Gustav kind of in two ways kind of tipped this off. One way is that his focus is now all the way on Paris. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't even thinking about 70.3 right. anymore. He has, seems to have like, I hit 70.3, I did Kona Ironman. Now I'm gonna get that gold medal and that's where he's yeah. at. Whereas- Well, and they just did Bermuda, I think it was yesterday, okay. which is short course Olympic distance. And I think um, I should be up to speed on this. I didn't read up on it as much as I should, but I think Gustav was top 10. So to go from Ironman to Olympic distance and be top 10 at the elite level, without you know any kind of training modification in such a compressed period of time, like bodes well for Paris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I but don't just, know where Christian ended up in that race. It just shows that, but like Christian, you know, he's so hungry to, he just wants race after race and he lost mm -hmm. and so he wanted this win. I just find it interesting how they, they on your podcast, they basically told us Christian recovers better. Mm -hmm. He can race again two weeks after an Ironman easier than Gustav. And right, well, yeah. but what's also an, yeah. another added interesting wrinkle to that is yeah. that I think Gustav is actually uh, like has a higher kind of um, threshold. So mm -hmm. he's technically should be faster, but if it takes him longer to recover, how does that work? Right. I don't know, because they're very different athletes. It's it was a, a fascinating discussion between the three of you. I, I loved it. Mm -hmm. and um, And, you know this, but this particular race, I was watching it, and Christian had that late downhill push, leaving American Ben Canute 
for the win. Um, on the women's side, I, 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 the women's side, I mean, the women were almost as fast. Like the men finished mm-hmm. their bike ride with an average speed of 28 miles per hour. I think the women were like in the 26s. Mm. I mean, they are fast. And Taylor Nib, another American, rising back up and winning. You know, the Americans are rising back up in this sport now. We yeah. saw it at Kona, right, with the second place. We see it here with the second place and on the men's side and then two first place finishes with women that were just not even thought of Mm -hmm. as real contenders. I mean, no one even, they were off the radar, not that they weren't contenders, but they just weren't talked about. Right. And so now the Americans are kind of rising back up in the sport. So that's gotta be exciting. I mean, I know people that you're friends with must be really excited about that Mm -hmm. in in this triathlon world. It is cool. Yeah, Yeah, it is cool. There is a shift. I think it's a new, like just this new generation of really interesting athletes yeah. uh, who you know are gonna be competing at the highest level for many years to come. Yeah, it's cool. Um, but from that, let's switch gears. Yes. I, I do wanna touch briefly on the 3100 self-transcendence run. <laughs> Insane. My favorite race. Yes. Where they run around a block in Queens like 800 billion times. Yes. To, uh, to accumulate 3,100 miles. Um, basically in 52 days or less, it's, it's essentially running 60 miles a day until you've run uh, ostensibly the, the distance of going from one side of the United States to the, to the other. I had Sanjay Rawal on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago. He made a documentary about this race called, called uh, Run and Become, 3100 Run and Become. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find that on Prime Video or you can listen to our podcast. Uh, in that it follows some athletes who uh, and their kind of life stories and why they do this thing. Uh, one of which is this guy, Ash, Ashprahanal Alto, who's won it a couple of times and he came in second this year. Um, the interesting thing about this though, that I wanted to draw attention to is, that there was a Ukrainian and a Russian who were running it. And uh, Outside yeah. Magazine wrote this article about these yeah, two ben guys Pryor. who are friends. Ben yeah, Pryor. You know this guy, Ben, ben Pryor. is a right? Rich Roll listener. And oh, cool. he reached out to Shout me, out to um, awesome. Rich Roll listener. And he reached out to me and we've worked together. He's done some research for me in the past. And, and, um, and he wrote this beautiful piece on, on this. Yeah. yeah, I loved it. It's pretty cool. Um, You're gonna link to it, yeah? Yeah, I'll link to it. And uh, you know the power of running to you know reach across boundaries and but also create some level of unity and uh, a bond for peace and also within yourself finding mm-hmm. more you know like that's well that's that, what the whole thirty one hundred thing is all right, about right it's this Sri Shinmoy uh, search for self transcendence right and you can't solve the world's problems if you can't you know transcend your own problems and that same kind of thread runs through your podcast it runs through the Goggins book mm-hmm. in both books you know like that's what that's what makes it unique that's why people want kind of this nectar i think because it is something you have to continually look for because it does mm-hmm. it, otherwise you just get distant from it you don't well you you never you never like transcend it completely no. it it right. tends to it tends to snap back yeah it's and i moving, can tell you for a fact yeah. that that is you know my experience of life yes. yeah know? life snaps back the in your face the minute you think like oh you've mastered something uh you will be rudely uh reminded that the work uh is never done yes um, but beautiful, man. Yeah, so we'll link up that in the show notes. Uh, we should <laughs> touch base on this guy, Ned Brockman, who ran across Australia. Did you follow this story? The 23 year old electrician. Yeah, this guy is off the rails. He ran from Perth to Bondi, uh, 50 miles per day in 47 days, covering nearly 2,500 miles. Mm-hmm. And he was raising money for a homeless charity. And um, he overcame like, <laughs> 
so many injuries. And like he at one point was sleeping two hours a day. I mean, it was yeah. it was amazing. And he got this huge following, like Forrest Gump style, didn't he? It's crazy because yeah. people run across America all the time. Right. And like I've had lots of those people on the podcast. And and you know, it's like small groups of people are there kind of, you know, good job. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they have friends and family and a hundred people meet them at the beach when they finish right, or right. in New York City. I mean, Hella had a nice crowd right. to greet him when he completed his run. This guy guy though, I mean, throngs of thousands. Like if you go to his Instagram, like it, he finishes in Bondi beach, like look at all these people. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm, I have his Instagram up right now. It's uh, Ned Brockman, two D's and two N's mm. on Brockman. Um, unbelievable crowds of people uh, to cheer this guy on. And this dude is, like the most Aussie Aussie in the history of Aussies. Like he's got a mullet and like the way he talks and the vernacular and the use of like Australian slang. Mm. Like, I don't even know what this guy's talking right. about 90% of the time. Fast talker. Um, I'm planning on being in Australia in January. I wonder if I can track this guy down. You got to. See if I can convince him to come on the podcast. Cause right. I would love to, you know, hear more about this dude. And he's 23. He has like positive energy. People love him. Yeah. There's something really cool about it. You're, he's so, not 56. Uh, mad respect. He's not 56. <laughs> I'm literally twice his age, Adam. No, you're more than Should that. Should I be bummed about that? <laughs> you're yeah, not literally twice right. his age. <laughs> oh, my God. oh my God, that's undershooting it like dramatically. <laughs> yes, thank you. I appreciate that. On the subject of, of being excited about somebody who did his own crazy thing, this guy, I wanted to shout out this guy, uh, Paul Minter, uh, who is a dude in the UK who, uh, a military guy who lost uh, 14 comrades to suicide uh, more than he lost to combat. Uh, he was a soldier and he founded this mental health charity called Head Up for the military and developed this range of positive mindset techniques. And to kind of raise awareness for that, he ran 5,000 miles uh, of the United Kingdom, like around the periphery, I believe, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the periphery of the, of the United Kingdom to raise awareness and money for military mental health uh, for this, this retreat center that he's trying to build, which is really cool. So Very cool. anyway, yeah. I went to Andrew Huberman's live show. He sold out the Wiltern right. Theater, it was great. Um, did his thing, it was unbelievable. Got to commingle with all of his fans. It was super fun. That's another weird Inspiring. thing about this era. Now it's podcasters professors going are, on tour. Professors are Just playing the, the Wiltern. Like, yeah, a neuroscience professor could sell out the Wiltern Theater and perform a neuroscience two hour lecture to a group of people who are taking notes and completely engaged with what he's doing. Like when you feel pessimistic about the future, like that is something that gives me hope. I think it's cool. Everything, everywhere, all at once. What's the connection? Isn't that, didn't that movie just come out or something? Uh, like, it came out like a year ago. Right, all, I don't these, know what, all this good stuff and bad stuff is all happening all at once. Oh, yeah, 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 I yeah, feel, yeah, I feel you, I feel you. All right, I don't wanna to dip too deep into the culture wars, but there is a certain issue that I think uh, demands our discussion and our redress. You wanna launch into this, Adam? It's a strange time to be a Jew. Mm. That's a quote from this book. One of several books I will be- Oh, Michael reading. Chabon's. Michael Chabon, mm. The Yiddish Policeman's Union, a great murder mystery. Um, I not read that one. And, uh, and it's always a strange time to be a Jew in that world, which it is. And it has been lately, you know, I, we don't have to get too deep into it. We all know what happened uh, with Kanye or Ye, Ye, is it Ye? 
Yay or Yee? Is it Yay? Yee. Um, Yee. He, he wanted to go DEFCON 3 on the Jews, even though DEFCON 3 is kind of like in the between. DEFCON 5 is bad. So DEFCON 3 is just a scolding. Right, it was weird that he chose DEFCON 3. Like either go all the way in <laughs> right. or like de-escalate. Right, right. He's def, DEFCON 3, just moving like, up a little we, bit. We're gonna, we're gonna incrementally increase. Incre- incremental. <laughs> and, increase and the threat. You know, it worked because there were banners over the 405 kind of saying Kanye was right and people honking. Mm-hmm. You know, Kanye is right about the Jews and people, a lot of people honking. There were mailbox incidents in Brentwood and Pacific Palisades where uh, kind of anti-Semitic literature was distributed. Cars were vandalized with swastikas in Calabasas. Mm-hmm. I know somebody who had that happen, um, or I know a friend of a friend, excuse me. Um, there was this- in Calabasas who had a swastika painted on their car? Not painted, keyed. Wow. Um, and that same message that was on those banners of the 405 was projected on a football stadium a week ago at the Florida Georgia game in Jacksonville, 100,000 or so people there. And the universities of both Florida and Georgia um, had to issue statements kind of obviously saying it wasn't us, it wasn't an organized thing and, and we condemn this. And then right after that, you know, not too long after, Kyrie made his post where he was promoting a, a movie that's on Amazon and you can find the movie. I'm not gonna go mm-hmm. spend that time on this platform to talk about it, but I will just say that it was a very anti-Semitic and it basically is a Holocaust denying movie among other things. Um, and it talks more in like the overall global conspiracy kind of jargon, just like Kanye was getting at. And that is, you know, that Jews run the world and they're mm-hmm. pulling a fast one or whatever it is. And those same kind of, Ideas have been around for a long, long time in neo-Nazi circles. They've been all of these fun. tropes yes. are, that are resurfacing are age old and timeless. Like they're the same arguments that get resurfaced whenever anti-Semitism flares up. 100%, 100%. So then there was like, after Kyrie's thing, there wasn't like some people spoke up, but it took a long time, like the like days passed. And yes, the owner of the Nets, who's Kyrie's, team that he plays on the Brooklyn Nets said something right away. And then there was this kind of lull and nobody said anything. Mm -hmm. The NBA didn't condemn it, didn't suspend him, nothing happened until uh, I give full credit to Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal and Reggie Miller, Malibu's Mm -hmm. own, who on inside the NBA and while they were doing their games last week, they just spoke out very strongly against Kyrie and in support of Jewish people. And so that was cool. I mean, even after the Kanye stuff, there was support on Instagram of people speaking out. Yeah. So there was, it was a Pretty mixed universal thing. denouncement. Yeah, of, so there was a universal Kanye. denouncement of Kanye, then the Kyrie thing happened, there was almost nothing. And then that happened. And so this, it is a strange time. You're seeing the kind of the anti-Semitism, you're seeing the support at the same time, strange times to be a Jew. But through all of that, um, in the defense of, and in the denunciation of, I noticed that uh, people don't really fully understand what anti-Semitism is or what, what these tropes are about. And, you know, I don't actually think, I mean, I could be wrong. I don't think Kyrie is, I don't think Kyrie probably even watched the movie to be honest with mm-hmm. you. And I don't think Kyrie hates Jewish people. Um, I think he's gullible. He's a flat earther guy, maybe years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think even people who defended Jewish people don't fully understand it. And so I just wanted to take just a couple minutes to talk about how I view it. And that is that Judaism is not just a religion. That's why people lie to frame it. You know, I didn't mean to insult your religion. It's not really just a religion. It's a tribe of people that have existed without a country for almost their entire existence, right? It, you know, kicked out of Israel, 
in Egypt as slaves, trying to get back to Israel, kicked out of there again, end up in Eastern Europe mostly, but all over the world. Um, my family came from my, from on my father's side from Russia, my mother's side, Latvia and Poland. And they lived their life here. They came over at the, in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, depending on which side, mostly beginning of the 20th century. And when they were here, Jews weren't considered white people. And you know, it was the influx of Jews mm -hmm. that actually ramped down immigration laws. So all, all of a sudden the wide open immigration wasn't wide open anymore because of so many Jews and Italian people, but mostly Jews that were coming in. And so this idea that it's just a religion is where I, I just wanna point that out. That's just not correct in my opinion. It's an ethnic minority group with a shared history. And it's been under attack, not just on the right wing. We all know the Charlottesville chanting, Jews will not replace us, mm -hmm. but on the left. Like I consider what Kanye and Kyrie are doing is more on the left side of things. I mean, Kanye is probably on the right, but Kyrie more on the left side of things where there has been, um, an increase in anti-Semitism, quite frankly, straight up. And a lot of that is conflated with legitimate criticism of Israeli policy in Palestine, but some of it is not. And you'll see, you'll hear the same new world order kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, George Soros is evil shit, which is the same thing that they used to say back in the early 20th century about the Rothschilds, the same shit is being reproduced now that you'll, you'll hear that in yoga studios. I mean, yeah. you will. And so you'll hear that on the left a lot. And so what we need to do is we need to combat this ignorance. Obviously it's always ignorance. Any sort of prejudice is just ignorance. It's just displaying your own ignorance. We know that. And so uh, I would just encourage people who are not familiar with Jews and there's not that many of us, you know, a lot of people are not friendly with us. So uh, not just, out, not, not for any reason, just they haven't met us. There's a great documentary out right now. It's a series by Ken Burns. We all know how great Ken Burns is. It's the US and the Holocaust. It dates back to how American Jim Crow policies actually influenced mm -hmm. the Nazi regime. And then it doubles back and talks about how, you know, early, industrialists like Henry Ford were actually in, in line with the Nazi re regime and all, all of that. But then it gets into real heroism and people who sp supported and spoke out against what was happening. Um, you'd be surprised to know that like when the finally during world, early days of World War II, when it came out that a million or so Jews had been exterminated in Europe, that wasn't front page news. It was like on page eight. I, I don't know why. You'll see That's in this documentary, nuts. it wasn't on front page news. The only paper in the country that had it as front page news was a Pittsburgh newspaper. I think it was the Pittsburgh Courier. It's a black community mm -hmm. newspaper. And they were the only ones to put it on the cover. And so, um, and that's because they had their own intimate experience with like oppression mm -hmm. and a genocidal kind of yeah. background. And so, I just, I think that it's important that people watch that. It's a great primer. And I think, you know, the only way to kind of eradicate this ignorance is by shining a light on it and trying to, to, to get to know a bit more about the subject. I think if you haven't read it, obviously Diary of Anne Frank, Anne Frank's family stories in that series. Man's Search for Meaning is like right up the alley of this sure. podcast. Sure. Um, Victor Frankel was in Auschwitz and it's, it, this is a story of survival, but also of trying to find you know, humanity mm -hmm. in that situation. And then there's Ellie Wiesel, who is, uh, this is a very dark story about his experience in the Holocaust. So those are great books. I highly recommend, but if your thing is watching video and watching movies, 
Ken Burns is the gold standard. Obviously we know that it's riveting stuff and I highly recommend it. Yeah, cool. Um, thank you for that. It is, it is so strange and disconcerting that there is this, uh, you know, this weird groundswell yeah. right now of this sentiment percolating up. Like why now, what is going on? And what's so strange about anti-Semitism is the weird and um, disturbing ways in which it kind of prods both left-leaning and, and right-leaning people. Like on the one hand, it's the ethnic minority who's, you know, who's penetrating our border and like taking our jobs and, you know, we're the, the non-white people, right? Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's also the people who have like sort of ingratiated themselves into culture and ascended to positions of power and are secretly controlling everything. You know? right. So it's like both right. of those both things, things are same, true right. at the same time, right. you know? Right. And that's what fascism is, right? When the right and the left meet, that's why it's scary. But I'm not here to say that I feel like we're on that trip down that memory lane to that dark place. I don't think we are. I don't believe that at all. Um, but, you know, like, listen, I've experienced anti-Semitism my whole life. It just happens. You know, like my great uncles and my grandparents, they endured it on the streets. I've had so many just mar- like comments at me or around me my whole life. It's fine we are not really geared to vocally fight it. We're more geared to ignore it and just get on with it. Like if you look at Goldman Sachs, I'm not telling you that I think Goldman Sachs is a great institution, but Goldman Sachs was started by Jews who couldn't get jobs on Wall Street Mm. because they were Jewish. Mm -hmm. And so then they started Started Goldman Sachs. And like, look what happened. You know, Hollywood started by Jewish people. So these kinds of businesses, I think that's where these myths and these conspiracies come through you know, they didn't need Wall Street to build Goldman Sachs and then dominated Wall Street. So that's going to engender a certain jealousy. Mm-hmm. I just think that, you know, obviously Kyrie made a mistake. I think Kanye is having mental health issues sure. personally, um, not an excuse for that behavior. And I'm not here to excuse it, but um, it just shows that we all have work to do, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I am encouraged by the essentially, you know, broadly unanimous yes. denouncement of all of this, but there are pockets of people for whom, you know, that Kanye, you know, Kanye's messaging like resonates with them, yes. which is disturbing, right? Yes. And you can't separate that from the impact of social media and the internet on how it's shaping and warping brains alike, right? Yes. In terms of like, you know, what we're seeing spill over into real world ramifications and culture, which brings us of course to Elon Musk buying Twitter. It's very controversial. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, He's sort of this, you know, incredibly successful serial entrepreneur, richest man on the planet who is kind of turning into an edgelord, like <laughs> interested in like, yes. you know, basically being extremely online on Twitter Yeah, and has purchased this platform where he reigns supreme and, it would appear as of today's taping is kind of making the rules, you know, as he goes. Now, listen, I think Twitter has a lot of problems. I think there's room for a tremendous improvement. I would like to see it turn into a healthy ecosystem for global discussion. Uh, Elon Musk seems intent on making lots of changes. As of right now, I'm not exactly sanguine about 
those changes, you know, being as positive as I think we would all like. And this is seems to be evolving moment to moment as right. we speak. Right, t- t- today it was well, something it was like- he's like, he, like this, this hardline policy on like, you can't impersonate anybody right. unless you declare that it's sarcasm. Right. But all of these accounts were turning their names into Elon Musk and then he's like banning them. And it's like, it's weird right now, right. everything that's going on Because there. sarcasm is always funnier when you say it upfront. Right, <laughs> but if Kathy Griffin right. is changing right. her profile name to Elon Musk, we all know that it's sarcasm. Right? Does she need to declare that, and then her account is suspended? Like, what is? Maybe there's something good about having a hardline policy of like nobody can impersonate anybody. Um, we'll see what happens here. This seems to be changing literally hour to hour. The latest I heard was that of all the people that were fired, now they're trying to bring a bunch of those people back. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, you know, did you see Kevin Ruse's kind of? Uh, well, he's got analysis. this new podcast now called Hard Fork with okay. Casey Newton, right? Right. And right. they did a whole deep dive last week on it, and actually interviewed some Twitter employees about what it's like, uh, you know, their lived experience of being there and kind of living through all of this. Are you going to fork over your eight bucks a month? Is I that even happening? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's already a thing. There's okay. an update where people are doing that. Are you um, doing it? I, did, I have a hard time imagining doing that. Like I have problems with this in that it seems like really what you're getting out of it is amplification of your tweets. If you don't pay the eight bucks, they've basically said they're suppressing your tweets and nobody's gonna see them. So is this a free speech <laughs> that doesn't thing? doesn't seem free speech. <laughs> yeah, like I think there is a bot problem and I think verification is important and it would be nice if everybody was vetted and you had to actually prove and establish that you are who you are. I think that would solve a lot of problems. And I think there is friction when you say you have to pay, suddenly a lot of these bots and bot farms are you know, gonna get weeded out, but right. I'm not sure this is the best way of doing that, but I'm not a computer scientist nor a social media engineer. Right. I just know that this is a very unhealthy situation right now and it feels very tempestuous at the moment. My friend Reese Pacheco sent me a couple of uh he's he's in, he's in um in finance and he's working on a, a great project I should say about uh t- kind of trying to find climate solutions but in you know investing in in climate solutions for profit. And he sent me a couple of like diatribes on this. And one of them was like this new social network that they're talking about. I know Jack Dorsey has a, is in beta yes. on a new thing. Mm-hmm. And so like- I signed up for that beta just to see. Did you? It's mm-hmm. a good idea. I mean, but what, would, what will happen? Like all these people who are on Twitter who had like hundreds of thousands of followers, they're not gonna give up on, like if they go to Mushroom or whatever it is, they're gonna right. start at zero. Like, Mastodon, or Mastodon, Mastodon. Mastodon's one of them. Is yeah. that Dorsey's I mean, one? No, no, no. I don't know who owns Mastodon. Okay. The, the Dorsey one, I forget what it's called, but it's still, you know, it, it's still in beta. Like right. you just give your email or whatever. Um, it's been interesting to see um, Jack Dorsey clap back on Elon a little bit also because- He's gone both. Because, both. well, Jack, yeah. you know, wanted, like Elon was the person that, that Jack really wanted to right. inherit this. Right. To, and, and he felt very strongly that Elon could solve these problems. Um, now it seems to be that there's a little bit of friction between them. It's hard to tell. The but, genius uh, myth. I mean, yeah, here <laughs> the we genius are again. Myth. You know, the here genius we are again. Myth. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, what is actually happening? To me, it looks like a dumpster fire right yeah. now. Um, but maybe he can do this. I don't know. Do what though? What is the what? What problem is he solving? 
Good question. Right. There's no problem to solve here. Mm. Like the problem is, is well, that, also we're going into the midterms right now. Right. And like, he's just fired staffs and teams of people who are involved in content moderation to avoid a lot of the misinformation that leads to all of these problems that we're seeing with you know alleged voter fraud, et cetera. I would like it if Elon could figure out a way to get the democratic party to stop emailing me. That would be good. How many emails? I can tell we- you <laughs> in the last two weeks, I literally get dozens of text messages, phone calls, and e- like I spend hours every day reporting junk and like unsubscribing from emails. Yeah. But literally in the last five days, yeah, I, I mean, like, how many text messages are you getting? Text message, email, I'm getting phone like, calls, and, and they're all desperate and thirsty. It's like it's not in, like who's who's in charge of email strategy? None of it I seems know. like it's going well. It's not good. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like we're gonna lose. Yeah. You, with this attitude, you're definitely going to yeah. lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One uh, campaign. So come Tuesday, tomorrow, at yeah. least all of that will stop. Hopefully. Hopefully. One campaign emailed me 14 times within a 24 hour period. <laughs> I told April, I said, this campaign 14 times. And she looked at me, she goes, you're gonna lose, bro. That's, that was her message for that campaign. <laughs> you are not winning. Oh man. All right. <laughs> I mean, all right, let's crawl out of this. Let's crawl out desperate of Desperate black hole. hole. Yes. Uh, all right, let's take one more break and we're back with more. All right, and we're back. I do wanna uh, note because we haven't done a roll on in a while. Yes. And this might be the last roll on of the year because we go into December. I'm, I've got some travel coming up. I'm not gonna be around. And then in December, we do our best of episodes. Unless you wanna maybe, do like a Zoom roll on. We can't do a Zoom roll on. Are you kidding me? I'm trying to get it. I'm trying to get another We roll might have on to in. pre-record a roll on that we could, re- we'll see. All right. But I'm trying to get one in, listeners. There's a chance this might be the last roll out of the year. <laughs> trying to get one in more in. In which case, let's like bring it back to, you know, something helpful to let's people. Let's do it. Um, but can I start? Can I start? Yeah. Happy 10 year anniversary. Thank you, sir. 10 years. 10 to, years to this week? Of this podcast. To this this date? Uh, no, it's, I think it's kind of around Thanksgiving. Like okay. I think it's near near the end of, around the 23rd or something like that of November. Can I we believe. turn this on guys? Did so, we, did we, did we, oh yeah, I, so. I, we, <laughs> I want, I want everyone to see so this. So we are celebrating 10 years. <laughs> yeah. We did, the last roll on we did though, I did do those 10, 10 or 12 things that I've learned right. from doing this for 10 years. Right. So I don't want to completely reprise that because that was a little bit of a, uh, you know, we were kind of celebrating then. Um, but there was, so when we first started, I'm going to show this video. We were early on the video because Julie and I would record these little teasers about the pod, so this was like for like episode four or something like that. This is on YouTube. Looking good. <laughs> Look at that. All right, I can't. I can't even. I can't watch myself. We're anymore. talking about the like, my crashing yeah, journey right, from like, today. Earlier, I actually today. feel a little bit better. Like, oh, I think I've maybe I've gotten better at this podcasting thing. You have. You have. Um, but early on in video, look how great you doing look. Like I looked. I was fit then. Now I, I feel like motivated to get fit again. Cause I, I am looking pretty fit there. You're anyway, great. Um, you both do. It's the point great. being, it's look been at her 10 looking years. At you lovingly. We're in this warehouse where the acoustics you could hear are terrible. I'm liking the, um, um, that, the fact that if there's a fire that breaks out, you're gonna handle it. You think so? Well, yeah, look at the fire extinguisher. Oh, there's a fire extinguisher there. It's, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, it's crazy to look at that 10 years. Um, and of those, kind of lessons that I shared last time, I felt like I rifled through them really quickly. There were three that I kind of wanted to spend a little bit more time on. Okay. 
The first of which, and the reason being that I think that these lessons are applicable and informative to anybody who's trying to achieve or accomplish anything meaningful in their lives. And the first one, and perhaps the most important of all of them is, is consistency, right? Like the reason this podcast is successful is that over that 10 year period, we never missed a week. We always uploaded. Mm. We never succumbed to perfection paralysis. Not every episode was amazing, but we just had this mission of like every Monday we upload no matter what. Mm. And now we do, you know, a couple midweek kind of things, but that whole like Monday morning, there's a new podcast up every time, no matter what, we've never missed in Professionalism. the entire time. So yeah. And so you learn as you go. And, you know, as you can see from this video and my cringeworthy uh, disposition, they're not all gonna be perfect. You're not gonna be great when you start. And that's not the point. The point is to marshal the courage to weather through that and continue to keep iterating and doing mm -hmm. in the face of understanding that it's not gonna be amazing all the time. Yeah. And this is the case for you as a writer. Yep. It's the case for me as an athlete or anything that I've accomplished in my life as a result of doing small things with extreme regularity and consistency. That's how you move the needle. So you look at these big goals and they're giant mountains that you have to climb and there's something sexy about, you know, planting your flag and declaring that as your goal, but in truth whether or not you accomplish that goal has everything to do with all the tiny little things you do every single day when nobody's paying attention and nobody cares and it's very easy to flake out and the stakes are low. 100%, you know, that's, that's the, the case of being a writer. You need to work the muscle. It's a craft, it's not a talent. Uh, you can have some talent and affinity for it and some natural talent, but that's not going to get you anywhere in a professional way, in my opinion. It mm -hmm. could if you also just happen to have like built in uh, tension, like you can focus and get something amazing out. And then maybe, yes, you can be a wonderkin, mm -hmm. but uh, for people like me, who did have some skill, but you know, just couldn't. You know, it took me a long time to actually be good and in, in, as a storyteller. Um, I could turn a phrase, but to, to actually uh, get good at this took me years and years and years of, of frustration and 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 just making an appointment with yourself right. to go do it. And even now, I'm doing Being it. Being willing to be bad, like Being even if you bad. like reduce the stakes even further in your daily journaling practice or whatever it is that you're you know trying to kind of master. Um, doing it privately for yourself and allowing yourself to be bad so that you get out of that mindset of being stuck or thinking that everything you do has to be great. And I'm just thinking about like this next book that you did with, with David Goggins yes. after like this just unprecedented success of the first book, yes. it would be very easy to be paralyzed and say, well, maybe we'll do a second book or maybe not, like well, it'll never be as successful. So why do another book? Let's go do a podcast or let's do something else, right? right. Like let's not even try right. or to go into that second book saying, well, there's no way it could be, that was a flash in the pan one time thing. So, okay, well, we'll do this book, but like, you know, it doesn't have to be that good because it'll never be as good as the other thing. Mm -hmm. But at least then we have like, I, I I can be of service to him and then we can, and, and obviously Jennifer Kish is involved deeply in this. And then it's like a team that- Right, that, I'm that, saying the courage to do, to show yeah. up anyway, in light of like all of that, and then get to the other side of it and actually create something that everybody feels like 
rivals, if if not altogether exceeds the right. original book itself, yeah. is a result of having the courage to like not pay attention to not be paralyzed by right. that early success. Yeah, and that's that's I think his secret to success in general is he's always focused on the next thing. The next thing. And yeah. he's keeping him he's keeping himself oriented forward. And then when you have it, when it's a team thing, it's a little even easier as a writer to, when it's, when it's a crew of us mm-hmm. working together, it actually, it doesn't make it easy. It's still hard and he, is, and he, and, and he has his process and I have my process and it's, it's all writing, it's all one thing. Um, and, but when you have each other and it's a team, it's, it's like even easier when you're by yourself and you're hitting your head against the screen, it's a lot, it's, 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 it's harder mm-hmm. to, to keep sure. going sometimes. And you don't have an accountability partner. Right. Because it's just you and whatever fabricated deadline you've come up with. And nobody mind. cares. Like yeah, at least in, in that sense, people were de- really wanted it. You know, mm-hmm. he's been asked about it. He's been like, you know, and people really want it. You know, there's a market for it. So just like you said, yes, the easy thing for him would have been like, hey, I've made my impact. I'll go do something else because I, I can do a million things and mm-hmm. the world's open. Um, and he chose this because he loves the process. Right. Um, which brings me to the next yeah, thing, which yeah. is process over results. Yeah. Falling in love with the process. Yeah. It's okay to uh, have a dream or a goal that is oriented around a, a certain kind of result. But if the result is all you care about and the process is nothing but drudgery that you, uh, that you dread, you're unlikely of being successful. You have to find a way to engage with the process and fall in love with it over time to mm. really allow it to energize you rather than it be, you know, sort of an impediment, you know, or, or something that you, you feel like is an annoyance on the journey towards a certain result. That's and the more you're one, rooted yeah. in the process, the less the results matter because to you know, sort of go back to the Goggins thing, like whatever the result is, you're on to the next thing anyway, because you're all about the process. And well, when you're talking specifically about writing, that is the process is rewriting and rewriting and reanalyzing and reanalyzing and rereading and rewriting. And so to get to be good at it, the process includes that. So that liberates you from worrying about is the first draft any good? Now it doesn't necessarily always work that way in everything that you're doing when you're when you're on a tight deadline. But for me, um, almost anything I write the first time through needs a lot of work. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's not your best work. It's the it's the first work and it's a way to to kind of get it out. Occasionally, like the O story, it came out real smooth the first time. It's very rare that that happens for me. Mm-hmm. Usually it, I chunk it out. But the Sometimes, point is you're writing all the time and 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 yeah. we're using writing as a metaphor for anything. That right. could be your race results right. or your right. you know your grade in your college class or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but it, it, the point is you're doing it because this is what you do and this is who you are, not because you wanna see a book on a bookshelf in a bookstore, but because you are a writer and writers write. Like I think one of the great examples of this is Ryan Holiday. Like how many books has that guy written in the last 10 years? Like he's written 12 books (laughs) and he's like 18 years old. And the reason is, is that he is a writer and he's in love with the process. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he turns a manuscript in, he's literally onto the next book, like the next day. Like he does not allow any, any any kind of like interference with 
the process of being a writer. Like he's researching, he's making these cards and he yeah. goes through his whole process. He has this box that he puts all his index cards in and how he maps out the all, the, and like all of the, yeah. And it's sort of, you know, when you're done with the writing and then you're onto this other phase of it, which is more reading oriented and, and it's all detached from whether the book ends up on some list or how many copies it's sold. It's the like process it's, itself. It doesn't impact like what he wakes up and does every single day. Well, I, I, I respect that. I mean, personally, I will say, I think that sometimes the process does feel dr- like drudgery. Sometimes it does for me. Sure. Uh, and that, that, that could be anything. And I'm sure there's athletes that feel that but way about training. But you do it anyway. But you do it anyway. You do it anyway. Because eventually there'll be a time in every session where you'll find the reason you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So like, even if it feels like shit, you feel like you're running in mud, for you know, three like for the most of your run for eight of ten k, there might be a point where you feel like, okay, that's why I did it. it might be right mm. at the end. Might be at the end, right? With the with the endorphin rush, right? But if you know, for me, um, that's an amazing story of of Ryan. Um, Seth Godin is the same way. Yeah. I did a podcast with him and hasn't gone up yet. But you know, that guy's written a blog post every single day for like how many years? Right back to 2005 or six or something like that, every single day. And he's a master of creative expression and and you know uh, uh, how you think about and pursue a life as a creative person who literally, you know, ships their work, like isn't paralyzed under the weight of their own, you know, the pressures that they impose upon themselves. Yep. I mean, you know, you 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 want to give your best effort. And uh, sometimes it doesn't feel that way when you look back at it that day, um, but that doesn't matter because over time the process and the consistency is the effort. Yeah, and that's what matters right? really at the end of the day. All the other stuff is nonsense because you do the thing because that's who you are and this is what you do. It's a great thing right? to remember. And it's back to that, that mindset. The, the final like point that I wanna make is around patience. Mm. And you mentioned like, yeah, you show up for it, you show up for it, it's drudgery, you hate it, it sucks, it's terrible. And then you have that moment of, of, of breakthrough where it's just flowing, right? And you're this channel and it's all working out. Mm. And you live for those moments as a right, writer, right. as an athlete where you feel in the flow, as a musician who's writing a song, whatever it is, those don't come easy and they're not predictable and you can't manufacture them. But the only way that you can experience them is if you're showing up consistently and make yourself available for that, right? Mm-hmm. And that requires patience. And beyond that, it's important to understand that becoming good at anything takes much longer than people are really right. willing to like reckon with or, or accept. Everybody in this instant gratification culture, they want the result, they don't wanna, endure the hard work that it takes to get there. And they completely overestimate what they can do in short periods of time. Like, oh, in a year I'll be here or whatever. I can, you know, this goal. And if they, if things aren't going well initially right out of the gate or it's not headed in the direction immediately that they want it to head, people abandon their, their, their path. And the truth is, and I beat this drum consistently because I think it's so important and I'm not sure that people really appreciate it or believe it, but it really does take at least 10 years to get good at anything, Mm. whether you're an athlete, a writer, podcaster, musician, like you show up for something every single day, it's gonna take 10 years minimum before you have any kind of like solid aptitude at that, Mm -hmm. that is worth sharing with other people. I found it interesting. And again, going back to your interview with the Bergen boys, 
that even when they were 14, like they were Gustav, training like professionals. Yeah, Gustav said he trained for 10 years. And even at 14, they had a 10 year plan. Right. At 14. And now they're 10 years later and everyone's like, oh my God, nobody can do this well at their first Kona right. and they're crushing it. But Gustav was like, yeah, I've been doing this since I was 14. I've been training like a professional. This is a 10 year plan finally manifesting. So let me ask you, have you ever had a five or 10 year plan? No. Like, like a formal one? <laughs> no, not really. No. Like I fall in love with certain things and I get invested in them and I pursue them and I've experienced that I actually don't get good at them for until like the decade, you know, lapses. And I'm just feeling that now with podcasting as a swimmer, as an athlete, it took 10 years to, I mean, obviously I was a kid, you know, growing into it and all of that. Um, you know, I've heard this when I was a lawyer, it takes 10 years to build a client list and be successful. Uh, you know, you as a writer, like, I don't know. I mean, certainly there's outlier took examples. Took me 20 years. <laughs> took you 20 years, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and all of, but all of these experiences that you have inform the craft. Well, Ryan, like Ryan Holiday, those guys sound very structured. Um, I've lived kind of un, unstructured. April always calls it, uh, I, have, I live the improv life or that's how mm. she always perceived it. And now I'm getting to the point where I've already know my ideas or, or have fielding ideas for next books right away. Like I'm into something already. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I'm now getting to that point. Uh, but I've never had the, I, mean, I remember an ex-girlfriend's aunt once asked me my five-year plan and I was like offended. I was like, I'm offended by that remark. Yeah. I was offended. So because like- no, no no, true free spirit artist free, yeah, right. would, would have a five-year plan. Yes. That is offensive. Right? I, a five-year plan is like a mask to the anti-masker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was like to me. I was offended okay. by, I, like, I didn't want anything to do with that stuff. But yes, I was more free spirited and, and all that. And, you know, I still have that. Within me, so it's interesting to like um, ponder that. Like, I was wondering if you'd had it. Like, even now, do you, do, now that you have a whole operation, do you guys have um, how how far out do you guys plan? It's interesting. Like, I I don't have a five year plan. I don't have a ten year plan. But I do have. I the way I think about it is what gets me excited and what am I curious about. Um, and I have the the privilege and the freedom to indulge in those things now because this is successful um, and because I'm surrounded by talented people who, who are very capable and can handle a lot of the things that you know, I used to do on my own. And Tyler, who's here <laughs> back working with us used to handle for me when it was just the two of us. Um, now I have some added free time to think about and execute on other projects. And that's, that is a privilege um, and I don't take it lightly. So I don't think about it in terms of, of Five or ten year plans. I think about it in terms of like what would be cool, what 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 would feel meaningful, you know, to invest some extra time in. Where do I feel underexpressed, and how can I express myself better in a way that would be helpful to other people outside of the podcast? All of those things are things I think about. You have your goals, um, though, right? You have like, like, like towards, like during the year, you start to think about next year towards the end, right? And think about is there something I want to add to the list next year? I mean, do you do that at all in any, even an informal way? Maybe in a very informal way. Okay. Like I said at the outset, like right. I want to have a stable body and yeah. I want to be fit enough so that I could like pop into right. all of these fun experiences. Like that's a that's a sort of vague goal, I suppose, yeah. but but important to me and meaningful. Yeah. That isn't wed to any kind of like timeline or anything like that. Mm. So I, I think setting goals is important. You want to have a North Star, something that you're working towards. 
Um, but I think you also have to hold on to those a little bit loosely. And um, and I've said this before, like be available and open to you know other intervening miracles that can uh, reconfigure your trajectory. Because if you're so like, this is what I'm doing and you're so rigid about it, then perhaps you're also blind to other things that could right. be beneficial. Or right, helpful. right, right, right. Um, really interesting. Uh, I was looking at your early episodes and you had Julie on episode one and three, you had Chris, Jabe. Jabe, is yeah. that who you were, that you were collaborating the, with over he there, was right? the, Yeah, he was the owner of Common Ground. Right. He was like our host or whatever. And then you yeah. had Gabby Reese, episode eight, and kind of you're off and running now on that, on that train. Um, I mean, I loved going through, like looking at that, I'm like, it's really inspiring to look back and see like that trajectory for me anyway, it was cool to see. Um, is there any early moments you remember that where you where it clicked for you? Like any early stuff where you're like, am I doing this? Or am I not doing this? Am I playing? Am I real? Is there, was there a moment early well, on? Well, there was never a sense that this was a vocation or a business. Like it was literally like me having a creative impulse and feeling a little bit stymied on this island where I felt disconnected and uncertain about what my next move would be. And also as a fan of podcasting, interested in this medium and had for a long time wanted to explore um, the possibilities there. So I did the homework to figure out how you do it because it's not self-evident how you do it. It still isn't like right. you do have to like, oh, how do you get this thing up on Apple? It wasn't Apple Podcasts, then it was iTunes. How does that work? Blah, blah, blah. Figuring all of that out. And then just sitting down and having a conversation with Julie at the end of which thinking that was fun. Let's do that again. It wasn't like, oh, this is my new life. You know, right, 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 right. It was just now people launch podcasts and they have strategies Everyone's and they hire publicists one. and they're pre-selling the advertising yeah. and they have a whole th thing about like how many should we record ahead of time and what it was like. It wasn't like that at all. Like we were just freewheeling it and having fun and did it for a long time before we monetized it in any meaningful way. I mean, years mm. before. It was self-sustaining in any in 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 any material way, um, but doing it for the love of it, doing it because I enjoyed the process of it, because it it scratched a, a you know a creative itch, and it allowed me to you know continue to grow and explore you know new ideas by allowing me to have conversation with conversation with interesting people at a time when people were not clamoring to start start podcasts. Like it just wasn't a thing back then. Like it was very unusual and not cool to have a podcast, but I loved it. And, you know, now the fact that it's like this, this huge kind of medium where there's so much energy and interest in is like an added bonus. It's like, very cool to have a so podcast now. It's crazy. Cause now it you're this, all at the red carpet. It was carpet literally on. the dorkiest thing ever. Like <laughs> it was sort of like, do you work at Radio Shack? Like where you're some kind of weird hobbyist, you know, yes, like, yes. embarrassing to admit, you know, in mixed company that you were a podcast host. And obviously that, that has changed. And well, you used to have to explain yeah. what a podcast is, I'm sure. Sure, of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. How many years before you monetized it? I don't think, I mean, I think we did some ads here and there for like Audible that were like, we were barely getting paid anything. So technically maybe we ran some ads um, you know, maybe in the second or third year, but it, it had to be, I mean, it, it, four or five years into it. But it was, it was, it was helping the sale of the book. So you were, you were getting, seeing some revenue, like, right. Yeah, but like the audience, it, it also, it also was just very gradual growth. Right. Like there was never any big viral moment. So there was no moment like you that. can point to and like, that's the moment where this, 
plane really took off. No, 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 no. It's just very, very gradual. The whole consistency. Time. Consistency, dude. Yeah. You know, everybody wants those big spikes, but right. you know, truly if you just keep showing up and keep showing up and refuse to quit and continue to get better and devote yourself to the thing that excites you and that you care about, like you uh, you know, then you're you're available for the miracle, and that doesn't mean that you're entitled to anything or no. that anything will you know, is guaranteed to occur. But um, it certainly can occur if you bail on it, or you are unable to be consistent, or show up for it, or give it the respect that you know it deserves. Beautiful. There you go. Well, thanks for inviting me um, into it in the yeah, in the recent years. Here's um, to ten more years. Yeah, I still love it. I really do. It's and uh, I'm excited for that for what's going to happen next year too. We got lots of cool plans. It, it's really exciting. It feels like more you're you're actually mainstreaming in a way. There's people who I know that listen to this that that um, that have come to you in recent years that aren't. I would never have put in one of your kind of like you know you had one thing. I always when I when I think about the success of the Ritual podcast, you think of well, you have these these niche markets that were always kind of, uh, you were organic kind of, you were, you're, you're, you, you belong to the sober living, the you belong to the plant-based and, like, and, yeah. the, and the endurance mm-hmm. athlete. So we've talked about that before, but now you're getting people who ne- aren't necessarily involved in any of those. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're getting almost a million on YouTube now. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Almost a million subscribers on YouTube. I know. That's nuts. That's it is crazy. nuts. Yeah. I'm one of them. You are, do I'm you subscribe? You subscribe. I'm glad I'm you subscribe. So both. do you get notifications and alerts when you're when you show up on the on the No, YouTube? because I have an alert when my name is on the internet. I don't want to uh. see it. So I have the opposite. <laughs> okay. Um, can I can I just point out one thing? Yeah. Before we get into listener questions. Yeah. Remember we talked about the uh, murder of Eliza Fletcher in Memphis. I do. And we talked about kind of the danger that women face going out running, and. Um, I mean, at night, especially. Mm-hmm. And people asked, I think I got a couple messages. Are there any solutions? You know, mm-hmm. I think we maybe got a phone call about that. Yeah. And we didn't have, we, we tried our best, but we didn't really have anything. Well, this company called Nathan, I never heard of them before in my life. Yeah, they make lots of hydration vests and camping gear and endurance uh, running gear. They have put together this, it's a night running hydration vest that includes a siren, like a, a, a high volume, high decibel siren that you can pull a ripcord on and it will just explode with light and, and siren. Wow. If you're in any trouble whatsoever, that'll wake up the neighborhood. So um, it would be very hard to, uh, to visualize someone hearing that and not running far, far, yeah, far, that's far, great. far away. That is a, an, an amazing solution. Yeah, it's yeah. a solution. Mm-hmm. So um, Nathan, you're saying they're reputable, you know them. Um, I'm sure they are. It's a great piece of equipment. Um, it's and you know if you added like a little pepper spray canister in one of these pockets, then you'd be fully loaded. I think to and it's uh, feel a hyd- and it's and it has hydration. Yeah, and it's reflective gear for running at night. Exactly. So it's firing on all cylinders. All cylinders. So congrats to yeah, Nathan. Cool. Thanks for putting this together. I think uh, women can really benefit from it. Don't you think? Yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, all right. Let's go to some listener questions. Listener questions. Okay, here we go. Antonia in Petaluma. Hey, Rich and Adam. I'm Antonia calling from Petaluma in Sonoma wine country. And over the past two or three years, I've been experiencing this increasingly persistent call to write a book. 
No, it's not fiction, not a memoir, but a book about a specific recurring theme in my life. So my question to you is, how does a lay woman like me, I have a business degree, I'm a winemaker and a yoga instructor with zero English lit or creative writing background, go about writing a book? Where do I even start? I would like to write it myself and find a good editor, but have no idea how to go about that. I realize this is a rather broad question, but since you both have written successful books with varying degrees of previous experience, I'd really appreciate just a couple of nuggets of your wisdom. Thank you guys for creating such a great show. It's impacted my life in more ways than you can imagine. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to hear for your nuggets of wisdom. Thanks. I love this question. Thank you, Antonia in Petaluma. Yeah, Petaluma, great town. It is. Um, Thank you, Antonia. Listen, the the answer to your question, like how do you begin? How do, where do I even start? You start by starting. You have to get out of your head and outside of like all the baggage that's holding you back, all this storytelling, this narrative about how I don't know how to do it. And I don't have a background in English and all of that. Just get out of your own way with all of these BS reasons and get out a pen and a piece of paper or open up your laptop and start typing. It feels like you wanna know where it's gonna lead you or you want to have all of your questions resolved and answered before you begin. And that's just not how it works. The way it works is the universe conspires to support you when you put in the work and you show up for it. So begin by doing that and something inside of you will come to life because you have this thing inside of you that's yearning to be expressed. And it's actually, here's a way to kind of reframe it. I think it's actually an act of violence against yourself to not express it. Hmm. By repressing it, you are not in loving kindness to who you are. Mm -hmm. Clearly you have something inside of you that's nagging you to be um, brought to life. And every day that goes by where you ignore it or you repress it, or you look for an excuse to not um, actualize it is not in service to who you are. Hmm. It is not in service to your authentic self that is telling you that you need to get this outside of yourself. And all the stuff you're worried about will get answered and resolved. There are people out there who can edit books, who can help you with structure, who can fact check. Um, and you know, there's a lot of amazing books out there that are not by people who have some background in Eng- English literature. They're from people who have something to say. That's the most important thing when you're writing a book. I never took do a creative have, writing class. Yeah, do you have something to say? The English part is easy. Like that has almost nothing to do with it. There are other people you can bring in to fix all of that kind of nonsense, but the having something to say, like really having something to say, that is the rare part and that is the hard part. So remember that and just get into action, begin, make it a practice and make that practice non-negotiable, create structure around that practice and then protect that structure above everything else. Get it done, ship the work as Seth Godin would say. Ship the work. Ship the work. None of it is meaningful until you ship it, which is when you let go Mm. and you allow it to be in the world, right? 
which is scary in its own right. We wanna protect it. It's not perfect yet. Gotta hold on to it. Once I let go of it, I can't control it anymore. I can't mm. iterate on it. Mm. There's a sense of vulnerability that comes with shipping it. And you don't have to experience that fear or that vulnerability as long as you are continuing to tinker, right? I've been tinkering with the novel a long time. I'm getting ready, I'm getting closer to shipping, but I'm still tinkering. Yeah. It's hard, it's scary. Cause I've never, I've never, haven't had success in the novels in the fiction space. So it's like terrifying. Right, but you have written books. So how does all of this square with you? Like, what would you say to Antonia? Well, I would say, I'm gonna give some practical feedback. I mean, you have some interesting books that you recommend um, for her to kind of take a yeah. look at. Um, the Stephen Pressfield, we, you talk about Rick Rubin's new one, The Creative Act. I think. Right, well, let me just do that yeah. and then I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've done many podcast episodes on the subject of kind of getting out of your own way and getting into the creative flow. Brian Koppelman is fantastic on this. So search the archive for that one. We talk a lot about the practice of journaling and the importance um, that Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way has played in his writing career. That book has been instrumental in my life. It's a book that I continue to return to to this day. I've been doing The Artist's Way on and off since 1996. Yeah, mm. since 1996. Um, Stephen Pressfield, his book, The War of Art, and he has a, a couple other books in that vein, Turning Pro, et cetera. I did a podcast with Stephen, but his book, The War of Art, perhaps the best book to read on getting out of your head and getting things onto the page. Um, Seth Godin, again, I did a podcast with him. It's not out yet, but he has a book called The Practice, which you should check out, similar to The War of Art. Rick Rubin's book, The Creative Act is coming out in January. That book is fucking awesome. Mm. I'm gonna buy hundreds of copies of that book and give it to everybody I really? know. It's really a beautiful book. Uh, it's a book that anybody who is interested in creative expression, whether you're a writer or whatever it is that you're trying to manifest in the world, I think would benefit from reading. And I would add to that list, Chase Jarvis's book, Creative Calling. Uh, Chase is also a, f a friend of the podcast has been on the show before. So in terms of resources, uh, I would suggest Antonia, that you check out all of those, and then I would add big put magic. those aside and start. Oh, big magic also, yeah, great by Elizabeth Gilbert. Yeah, there's, yeah, a, yeah, there's yeah. a little bit of big yeah. magic energy in the creative act in Rick mm -hmm. Rubin's book mm -hmm. and the podcast that I did with him. That's going to come out in the new year. We we talk about that a little bit, um, but yeah, great, great addition. Yeah, to I would that add list. big magic. Um, the problem is, and then I'll turn it over to you. Yes. Sorry to no, no, sorry no, to no, keep not at all. Speaking over you, no. um, it's easy to then get immersed in all of these books and podcasts and say, well, I'm learning about right. being creative when actually you're just using that as a, uh, uh, like, a um, like a smoke shield to prevent you from actually doing the thing. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I mean, um, personally, I am not one of those writers that really meditates on the practice of the creative or on the creative process at all. I've never have been. I've been much more, you know, just do it kind of like the consistency, just put in the hours and, and, and do it. Um, but from the practical aspect of this, I think you're right uh, in terms of doing some preparation and reading on it would be helpful to her because it would decode it. And then I also think that, you know, getting into some sort of journaling practice or just a practice would be helpful because you don't have the muscle built up yet and you need to get mm -hmm. it, you need to, you need to get it working. So. Having said that, when you're talking about actual practicalities of how does a book come to this world, in, in nonfiction, you have the ability to write a book proposal. You don't have to write the whole book. 
you can write a sample chapter or two, figure out the marketing plan, figure out where this book fits in the mark in the marketplace and all of that. You can easily Google book proposals and find some examples. And that's how, I don't know what the full percentage is, but a vast majority of nonfiction books are sold today is they're sold via agents to publishers in book proposal format. Mm -hmm. And so you don't actually have to write the whole book to get, to create a book and eventually you do, but yeah. you don't have to get but those it to are you. two like the, yeah, it's a, it's a good distinction to bring up. I guess the question is, what is the purpose of this book? Is it to just write a book and be expressed in that, right. in that, in that thing that you're trying to, you know, wrap your head around, or is it to be a published author? Like that's a whole different thing because you're bringing commerce into this. Right, right, right. And so I guess I was just putting that in because it's the only thing I could add. That's more a little practice when you're thinking about this. Um, and obviously you, she is visualizing a book right. and a product. And there's the many ways of like, you can self-publish, right. you, can, you can do the book proposal thing. You can. You know, the book proposal thing is now, it's sort of like, you know how studios are only making superhero movies. Right. Like now publishers are only making books from, you know, people with giant Instagram accounts. That's and true. you know, it's like a lot of that That's kind of true. stuff gets played into it, but none of that should be an impediment to you creating the book that you wanna create because we're in an era in which those gatekeepers no longer are playing the role that they once did. And there is no impediment to distribution. You can create a self-published book and get it on Amazon and get it out in the world. And perhaps that's the best first way for you to become an author. Yeah, I love it. We're moving right on to Rich, not Rich Roll, but Rich in Rockfield. Rockford. Oh. Rockford. Rock, Rockford. Yeah. Rich in Rockford. Hello, Rich and Adam. Uh, this is Rich Toppy from Rockford, Illinois. I'm 71 years old, so I suspect I skew toward the older range of your listeners. I discovered your podcast about five years ago and enjoy the great interviews and information. Roll On is especially a treat when you share your banter. It's like hanging out with a couple of good friends. I've learned a lot too. I can now say, hey, it's not age slowing me down. I'm just doing a lot of zone two training. My question comes from listening to both of you so effectively share your reading experiences. Clearly, you both read volumes of information to be your best as an interviewer and a writer. How do you retain and then retrieve as much as you do? Certainly, you prepare for specific topics and guests but you often pull thoughts from books you've read long ago and then apply the ideas to a subject that has randomly popped up. I love to read, but wish I could retain much more than I do. Are you just lucky enough to have superlative memories or are there some skills that you could share to help us all get more from our reading? Um, it's sure okay to use this uh, on, on the air if you wish. Um, I really appreciate um, all I've been getting from your program. So all the best from the Midwest. Thanks a lot, bye. What do you think, Adam? I just think that he sounds like a swell fella. Sounds like a nice gentleman. I know. It's like it's like the the Midwest. It's like his Midwest. His his. You know. You know what I mean. Like his manners and his Genial laid back and convivial. Yes, that's what I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think I have a great memory. I definitely. I assure <laughs> you, my memory is anything but superlative. Yeah, yes, yes. Yes. But you are good. I mean, he's right. You are good at pulling. Um, 
you know, tidbits of knowledge and, and things that you remember from either from your past or things that you've read, especially I think in your one-on-one guest uh, it's, stuff. Yeah, it's, you, nice you do, to, yeah. it's nice that he has pointed that out. Yeah. I would not have thought that I was somebody who would stand out in any, in any way for that. I mean, I think to the extent that that is true and I would challenge just how true it is, um, it's because this job requires homework. You're always doing homework. Mm. And a lot of the guests that I've had on the show are, are published authors. And I do my very best to read their books in their entirety, or at least as much as I possibly can before they're on the show. Um, and if they have multiple books to, to familiarize myself with the canon of their work. Um, and I spend probably eight to 10 hours of of prep per guest, irrespective of whether they're an author or not. And I create an outline for each guest. So that forces me to take what I've read and distill it down into interesting kind of bullet points. I don't write out questions, but I write topic headings. And if it's somebody, if it, you know, if somebody's written like a nonfiction book, I'll kind of go through the structure of that book and extract from that themes and principles that I wanna explore with the guest. And I think the process of not just writing, but then creating the outline, you know, every little extra step um, cements the information and the knowledge contained in the book a little bit more deeply. And then I'll review the outline and I'll refine the outline and then I'll make extra notes. So all of those little things I think really help, you know, anchor whatever I've learned um, in, in the memory bank. Uh, and I don't know how long it stays. Like, you know, sometimes I don't remember anything about mm -hmm. what we talked about or what that book said. Um, for books that are super meaningful to me, it seems easy for them to remain in my conscious awareness, other books, not so much. Um, and I think it, it goes to understanding how you learn, everybody learns differently. Like I know that often I'll consume a book as an audio book. I'll go out on a Saturday morning for a long bike ride and I'll listen to half of an audio book, but hearing it, I don't retain it nearly as well as I do when I read it, like I'm a visual learner. Is that, that's so right. then I have to go to the printed book and kind of go through it and make notes and in the typing and in the looking at my computer or in you know, the pieces of paper, the vi like something about my visual cortex or whatever gets mm. activated that, 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 that helps me learn better than hearing. And mm. I'm sure other people are the other way around. So I think it's a piece of self understanding and then developing practices uh, to kind of cement what's important for you to learn. And now there are all of these resources. You could read a book. I know what it's like to read a book kind of casually and then be like, I have no idea. I can't remember anything from right, that book, right. but you can go to Blinkist or you can find summaries online and just doing little refreshers brings a lot of that stuff back. Um, and it's helpful because it's easy to read like a really long book and you've, you've read so much that you lose the forest for the trees, right? And you kind of need a synopsis or a summary to like remind you, oh, here's what's important. Here are the primary tiers and here's the kind of scaffolding upon which to hang all of these interesting ideas. And revisiting that, I think with some regularity helps kind of again with that um, long-term memory piece of really anchoring it. Hmm. And then thinking about it, like how does it apply to your life also in terms of problem solving, yeah. at least in the kind of nonfiction space. It's interesting. I, I, I don't think I have great memory or can pull 
pieces of writing or I, like, I'm not the guy that toasts, you know, and, and recites, uh, terrible. recites yeah, Chaucer. Yeah. Well, you have friends, they remember quotes from movies right, and yeah. they can like, they remember everything about what a movie was about right. that they saw 15 years ago. I'm definitely not that guy. And I, can, I, I do it even, I, can, I have a better memory for movies sometimes than books, but there are, and there's times when I'm writing a, a, a story and I'm like deep diving into material and I'm reading a lot about it. And then I'm, I write this piece. And then as soon as it's done and it's published, if you ask me about it, like three weeks later, I, I, would, I would sound like it wasn't me that wrote it. You know, like I also right. have that where it just kind of goes away. I have that with the podcast. People are like, mm-hmm. remember when, you know, you and so-and-so said that thing and right. you talked about that thing. I was like, no, I have no, I, I have no memory of that. Yeah. but. I write, I read, I read as much as I ever did, maybe more so. I'm putting books away a lot quicker. I've got, um, I'm reading fiction and nonfiction simultaneously now. I used to kind of stick with a book and I'd finish it no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so that would block me from reading more books because sometimes I'd be in a book that's dry or that I'm not connecting to. And I'm just because you started a book don't, doesn't mean you have to finish it. Right. So now I, I, I give myself permission to not finish mm-hmm. it. And so because of that, I'm reading more and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm going back between fiction and nonfiction. I used to think when I'm writing nonfiction, I'm going to read fiction. When I'm writing fiction, I'm going to read nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And I just don't have those kinds of guardrails at all anymore. They're just excuses. Mm-hmm. And um, and to be quite honest, there's so much content out there, TV content and and like audio content. There's so much of it. I'm, I find myself like taking up shelter in books. You know, like I can't take. <laughs> How that. can you read a book though when White Lotus is back, Adam? Well, I'm on White Lotus. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm on that, but you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, I and do. so I'm I reading do. more than ever. And so, uh, and some books do stay with you, right? For long ways. And so often I think if you're saying that I brought it up, it's probably cause I brought, I bring up the same like five books, but mm-hmm. there, um, I do, I will, one recommendation is um, Dwight Garner, who is a literary critic at New York Times. We've talked about him on this podcast, I think before. And he has something called Garner's Quotations that just came out not too long ago, maybe mm. a year ago. And he is one of those that can pull a quote for anything. Like he can, he can pull a quote out of left field for any occasion. His and own quotes or just quotes, no, quotes, of, quotes of from things like that other stellar people quotes said. from, from mm. like luminaries. Um, and then another person, Kelton Reed, who has the Writer Files, a podcast host, a good, good friend of mine, he does the same thing. He's able to put quotes out there and you'll see it on his Instagram or the Writer Files. Um, and so they're really good at that. Um, I think I'm just, I just read as much as I can and hope to retain it, but I don't have any strategies for you. Yeah. So you didn't answer his question at all. <laughs> I have no strategies. I can't Keep reading, you. read more. <laughs> All right. Uh, but I appreciate the question. Yeah. That's yeah, nice. I think well, he's talking nice. to you. It's, you're good at that. Nice you are that good you, at that. It's nice that you appreciate the question. Listen, man, <laughs> you're good at that. You happen to be good at it. Yeah, you but pull, I, it's, it's sort of like, uh, there's a little bit of, cr- you know, like you cram for a test. Yeah. You know, so you know it all. So I, I'm like fully, right, 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 fully right. dialed when I'm doing the podcast. Like how long does that, remain. Also, when you get older, like the hard drive's full, dude, you know, like everything that comes in, something else has, like I'll yeah. notice like, I, I can't quite, like I, we couldn't remember Brendan Gleeson's name, no. right? Like that's right. a name that like maybe 10 years ago, I would have had no problem well, sure. recalling because right. the hard drive is kind of, it's crammed, right? It's so, dusty. Yeah, you gotta yeah. like, if I'm taking in some bullshit, I gotta get rid of something else. Right. That's why take in less, read yeah. more. Um, I have one for you, the one last thing that we could offer. Cause you know, I know you talk about David Epstein's book, Range. I do talk, that's one that- and so that, that, is, that kind of fits me. here because like, I think that we both have wide interests 
And because of that, we're going to read from a wide you know, range of material. And so it might seem like we're like, <laughs> we know mm. more, you know, the, that idea of having a range of interests might feed into this in a way. Like mm. you have memories from different parts of your kind of personality or, 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 or um, you're the dashboard that you're seeing the world through. And, um, and so that might help actually kind of being, sounding like you, you have a little bit more handle on things than, than you really right. do. It's all about like the illusion of, of making it seem like I'm better at stuff than I actually am. <laughs> Great. There this you is go. Good. I all hope right. this is revealing. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's, let's get to this last question. Let's land this plane. Yeah. We're going to Zach up in, uh, I don't know, is he, is he in Spokane? He's in Eastern Washington. Eastern Washington. Hey, Rich and Adam. My name is Zach Smith. I'm from Eastern Washington. I'm around 27 years old and I'm a plant-based runner studying to become a dietitian, both things inspired by your podcast. Currently, I am training for the Mesa Marathon and the good news is with that zone two approach, I am getting faster, but I'm actually becoming scared of achieving my goal of qualifying for Boston. I feel like I'm getting hooked on getting faster as a runner and losing touch with the broader joy of the sport at only three years into my running journey. So I was hoping to hear you and Adam speak to why we pull ourselves away from family and friends to pursue these efforts and how motivations for these efforts change across time. And if you have any past podcast guests who speak to this um, that you'd recommend returning to, I'd, I'd love to hear them. Thank you for your time. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. thank you for the question, Zach. Um, to the point or to the question of speaking to why we pull ourselves away from family and friends to pursue these efforts and how motivations for these efforts change across time. I don't know what you're talking about, Zach. I I would, I, I, that doesn't yeah. happen. I never do that. <laughs> right. But I don't know what, what is animating Zach. Like, I don't know right. what his motivation is. Is it, it sounds like it's germinating from some kind of performance um, goal that he has qualifying for Boston, et cetera. I think it's interesting that he has enough self-awareness to realize he's getting hooked on the performance aspect of it. And this is draining some of the joy out of the sport at mm -hmm. only three years into this journey. Um, and that self-awareness is powerful to the extent that you channel it into some kind of behavior modification. So I think in your case, there's some easy fixes understanding that you have this goal, you wanna qualify for Boston, but you're also afraid because you're getting so into the performance piece that it's not as fun as it used to be, or it's not, it's, it's not as joyous as when you began. So let's cure that by incorporating into your training routine, some fun runs where you don't have the Garmin on, you take off the heart rate monitor, you forget about the log or whatever, you know, sort of, purpose of the training is that day. And you just go get lost in the woods or you go out with friends and you have a good time. The joy is the sustainable energy that will keep you in the sport, you know, for many years to come. But if you lose touch with that, you will burn out and you may achieve your goal and all of that, but that goal won't be as joyous or as meaningful as it could be if you're able to find a way to maintain connection with whatever it is about running that 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 provided that sense of joy to begin mm. with. That's a great answer because I know Davey talked about it before going to New York that he wants to take a break from running after New York and April said the same thing. She had this goal of sub 145 for um, the half marathon and she was like the same thing. It's like, I'm ready to stop running for mm -hmm. a while. 
It's so interesting. And they, I'm sure they both were on these training programs and they were on performance kind of base. Your life and, gets very regimented. Right. Um, so that's it. I love that idea. Cause you know, the other day I went for, I hadn't been able to get out cause I've been working and just can't run. And I went out for a swim and I forgot my Garmin at home. And it was my most fun swim I've had right. in so long. At first you're like, you yeah. feel naked. Yeah. You're like, does this even count? Right. Do I even right. do it? Right. You know, which and is it, weird. And it's my furthest swim I've done in the ocean since, you know, I did the 5K swim year, a couple of years ago. So it's like, um, maybe three years ago. So it was, it was great. And uh, so that's a great piece of advice. I think in terms of pulling yourself away from family and friends, I wouldn't put like, I mean, you're 27. I wouldn't put that guilt on you or maybe you're feeling a little FOMO because you got a lot of young people and friends that are like having a lot of fun at night and you have to get some sleep because you're running early in the morning. Maybe that's where that's coming from. I personally think that we are called to escape like, and, and it's okay. Like, I think the beauty of escape is a, is a wonderful thing. I've lived, I've lived it many times. As a Jew, it's, yeah. it's in our nature, um, but uh, no, but all seriousness, like the idea of dropping out and going for a long travel or getting out in the ocean and forgetting everything's for two hours or going for a long run. I think there's a lot to be said for that. So mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't feel bad about that, pulling yourself away. It's not, what I do now is kind of take bite-sized moments like that if I can. It's it's the only time I'm not either working or spending time kind of help you know with the family and 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 all that. We need that, especially Americans and the individualist mm-hmm. society that we are in. I find myself needing that um, time, and it's the best way for me to take time. That's also fueling my well-being, which only helps me work harder and be better with my family. So all that kind of stuff. I don't look at it as um, as pulling myself away, I look at it as needed time to recharge. Um, and so that's the only thing I would say to the question that I disagree with, but I think your your point to like bringing the joy back is is, is really Yeah, good I mean, I think rather than framing it as an escape versus being plugged in, think of it as nourishment versus depletion. Like, are you being nourished mm-hmm. by these training sessions or are they depleting you? If you're training for a hardcore goal, you're gonna get depleted. Like you're gonna be pushed and challenged and that's okay. That's part of the whole deal, right? And there's something to be gleaned and learned about yourself from that experience. And this is part of why we sign up to do hard things. But ultimately in the long run, it has to be more nourishing than depleting. And whether that means you take breaks or you find ways to build into whatever it is that you're pursuing that nourishment piece, be it through community or through a relaxation of the pressure that you're putting on yourself, et cetera, getting immersed in nature or just finding a way to make it fun, gamifying it somehow, um, that's critical. uh, Even if you might in the micro feel like it's moving you away from the goal that you're seeking because it's not part of the training program, right? right? right, right Ultimately, right. it's 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 going to you know build longevity by creating that you know deeper kind of emotional connection with this thing. And your motivations for these efforts change. It's going to change. You're going to evolve. You're going to grow. You're going to have different responsibilities and and desires as they come through. It's like like we said earlier, the seasonal aspect of living. That's just the way it is. And mm-hmm. so that we embrace that. We embrace that these motivations are going to change, that we're gonna to try to find a new way to approach the same thing that's been good for us. And that's the goal. But then if you have to kind of press pause, there's nothing wrong with that either, right? Like mm-hmm. if you need to take, look at it as a season, maybe look at how, you know, 
tennis players take six weeks off at the end of the year or runners yeah. take four weeks off. Maybe you need to take a break so that you can come back fresh. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and finally, to kind of round this out, uh, part of the question was whether there's a past podcast guest who speaks to this. Um, I would suggest uh, my conversation with Brad Stolberg and his book, The Practice of Groundedness. Brad's pretty great on this very subject matter. He's also a great follow on Twitter where he writes, he sort of micro blogs on Twitter. Mm. Um, and talks a lot about this kind of thing. So he's great. I I, I, I've yeah. got him on Instagram now, I believe. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. But did you see uh, Kipchoge uh, recommended two books? <laughs> he recommended, he recommended uh, Atomic Habits by James okay. Clear, friend of the pod. Yes. And he recommended Brad Stolberg's Practice of Groundedness. Oh, really? How about that? Like, How what, about a, that? what a cool, like, it's one thing, like, James Clear sold, I don't know. 10 million books. Right, I mean, right. that book is crazy, oh right? God. But for Brad, yeah. like very cool for him. It's very cool. For him, that the goat is like, read this book. Did he run, did Kochogi run or is he just on the, on the outskirts of the race? Did he run the race? You mean ever? Does he just float above the road? No, when did he, he run in New York? In New York? No. no okay. No. He did so. a shakeout run though. I know Davey did. Right, cause like I knew he, had, he was there. So yeah, I didn't he was know there. if he was running the race or no, not. No, I don't think he ran the okay. race. Yeah, cool. All right, let's get out of here. Are we done? Yeah, dude, we're we're How done, do feel? and I feel, I feel, still fifty. Do you still feel fifty six? Fifty six. What does that mean? What, how am I supposed to feel at 56? I don't know, man. All I know is I had a PRP injection. Have you had one of those? I had the I had that for my back on one. I mean, occasion. that is that hurts yeah. like a motherfucker. It's, it's no joke. It's no joke. <laughs> my yeah. eyes were watering for like three yeah. hours. I thought I was going to go back and get some work done. I was literally on the couch trying to read with like. Yeah like eyes watering, mm -hmm. yeah, pretty funny. Yeah, tales from, tales from the, <laughs> tales fifth, from the, mid the, fifth, de the fifth decade. <laughs> the All right, um, listen, if you have a question you want us to talk about and who knows when we're gonna do a roll on again, but anyway, leave us a message. Wait, are, the number it, to do are you that. firing me? No, I don't know when we're doing what roll is this? on is again. Is this Twitter? You're not, no, <laughs> yes, <laughs> all hands on deck. <laughs> you policies. might get fired, but you could get called back into <laughs> work might, next week. I'm gonna fire you, but I'm gonna call you. <laughs> yeah, and plead with you to come back. Yeah. Uh, leave us a voicemail at 424-235-4626. Um, and that's it. Any parting thoughts? No, that was, uh, thank you. Thank you for the time today. Yeah, thank you. Super fun. Let's do it. Let's, should we do it again? That Let's was do fun. it one more time yeah. before the end of the year. What All do you right. think people? Maybe, we'll see. <laughs> All right, peace. Fuzz bubble. <laughs>